welcome to episode 22 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I'm joined by Dave Barker. Hello Tony, hello listeners. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you would like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. The support from our patrons helps towards the cost of producing the show and towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming miniatures. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their web store, and that way any purchases you make will directly help support the podcast. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. So Dave, what have you been up to? Hey Tony, yeah, I guess it's a while since we've uh, we've recorded together properly, so... Um, uh, it's nice I, to have you back on the back. show. Yeah, uh, so I've been doing quite a few things really. Lots of hobby type stuff, uh, plenty of painting as usual, uh, not very much gaming, same as everybody else, but looking forward to, to the end of lockdown when we can get some Garden Hammer games in as, as things start to ease up. Yeah, hopefully so. We've just had our uh, UK announcement on the roadmap to freedom. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And the, the first thing a lot of my uh, friends online texted me about, even even after, as it was announced in Parliament, even before the official briefing uh, I was having text going, hey, Garden Hammer at the end of March. Well, if it opens up, when it opens up, I certainly will be trying to get some more Garden Hammer in. Hopefully. Um, so, yeah, so it's it's good to have you back on the show after a little while. Um, and tonight we have a few things we're going to talk about, actually. So, as always, we've got uh, one or two quick announcements at the start of the show. We're going to check in with the Paint Station Garrison, of which I'm sure, Dave, you will have completed tons of stuff as you always do i've got a bit i i've had some distractions i'll talk briefly about those as well <laughs> whereas i've been a little more limited on uh, painting time recently so i'm still plugging away at a few things but i have got one miniature at least finished that i'm proud of excellent um we then have our spotlight topic for tonight which is actually going to be the new or i say new perhaps returning maelstrom of war missions for ninth edition yeah, it's it's interesting, Melston. Why I opened, I actually only opened my White Dwarf with it in earlier today, and uh, it was something that I played occasionally at club to to build stuff up. But it, it, for me, it's not not my favourite mode of play. But it's certainly an interesting one, certainly a popular one, and it, and it has that that uh, reputation uh, that goes with it that it's a bit weird. Right? <laughs> it's a bit weird. It's a bit fun, and yeah, it's it's been very popular in the past. I know I spent basically all of 7th and 8th edition playing Maelstrom of War like as my most common like mission types. So um, it was a bit of a shame to see them disappear in 9th edition, but I guess it was because they didn't quite translate you know, smoothly as they were to the new no. way 9th edition plays. But that's okay, because Games Workshop have given us some beta rules to try out the new Maelstrom of War missions as created for 9th edition. So that's going to be fun to talk about. 
Yeah, and absolutely, anybody who wants to, you know, after listening to what, what we, when we talk about them later in the show, uh, and anybody who's got White Dwarf, is it 461, the latest one that they're in? Um, certainly the Games Workshop want your feedback, right? So uh, if you you heard what I, we've said, if you've, you've read the rules, they certainly solicit in feedback and want, want to know how people feel about these beta rules. Yes, it, it is totally worth like you know highlighting that point that this isn't just a rules release in White Dwarf in the same way as say the Flashpoint articles. This is a it's a beta rules release. So the intention is that Games Workshop is looking for feedback on it, and then we'll make amends and adjustments, and then probably um, publish a um, a more finalized version of the rules with that community feedback. So I think it's a really good avenue to be using like White Dwarf for this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. It's nice to see that. I mean, I believe this is how Bolter Drill and Shock Assault originally started their lives um, for the Space Marine like forces. I, and, uh, I'm going to believe you because I don't honestly remember. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember if they were FAQ or if they were White Dwarf. I'm sure at least one of them was yeah. one or the other, but... In either case, all good things are on the way. Yep. Um, and then, uh, after that, we're actually going to have the latest in our On Crusade segments. So you and I sat down earlier in the week, didn't we, to discuss we um, the Dark Angels on Crusade. So that was a, a good segment, and uh, stay tuned if you want to hear about how the Unforgiven are going to be going around waging war in their Crusades. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's an interesting new release. This uh, Dark Angels Codex it had a bit of depth of flavour. I always I did hope for a little bit more, but uh, by able to mix up the the Dark Angels uh, Crusade stuff with the the general Space Marine uh, stuff that they also have access to, I, I think you can build the kind of Dark Angels Crusade that, uh, in whatever flavour you like. And uh, I'm certainly tempted to get out my Dark Angels again. That I I, uh, I started with the Dark Vengeance box set. How how many years ago that was? <laughs> Yeah, and I do think it is interesting that this is the, um, I guess it's not the first of the supplemental Crusade stuff because we've had um, Deathwatch, Blood Angels, and Space Wolves previous to this. Um, But it's the first one we've had a chance to sit down and review where it's that extra layer of Space Marine Crusade rules on top of the standard Space Marine Crusade rules. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's a really good conversation. Um, and then at the end, we will round out, as we always do, with our community spotlight, highlighting one or two of the various content creators or Instagram accounts or other similar just community members out there that we've been following recently or enjoying their content. Yep, that's always a great section. And speaking of enjoying content, the uh, one quick announcement we have for this episode is we have yet again a brand new patron. Excellent. So, funnily enough, it's Mr. Adam Boise. So Adam was on uh, the last show, is that right? He was, and clearly he enjoyed being on that much. He decided to sign up for our patron. Excellent. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> so thank you, Adam. You are welcome back on the show anytime. It really does help. Um, so... Tonight, in this episode, we're going to jump over now to the first of our segments, which is the Paint Station Garrison. Paint Station Garrison. 
And we are back, guys. So now we're on to the paint station garrison, where we're going to talk about anything and everything that we've just been working on, really, in our hobby stuff recently. And uh, yeah, anything that's been hanging around in the garrison for too long. Looking at you, looted wagon. Yeah, no, I've got certainly got things that have been hanging around for a while, and I've had lots of half mixed projects and stuff like that. And, uh, but I, uh, yeah, I've not been in on on the podcast since the end of October, I think. So. Um, I have completed some stuff. At the moment, I'm painting uh, another five uh, Death Watch Firstborn Marines to complete out the squad that I posted on the group a little while ago. Um, uh, so I enjoy Death Watch and enjoy building them up and painting all the different chapters I think I've talked about before. I've also got two old epic titans, the Beetleback type ones from the original Adeptus Titanicus box set that I'm doing as part of an old timer challenge um, at the moment. So I'm going to do this one as a, um, a Fire Wasp. Legio Ignatum, and the other one, uh, a Legio of my own design. The uh, what did I call it? The Legio. Um, give me a moment. <laughs> uh, the Legio. Uh, the Legio Adiposi uh, Alicornus, which is more or less translates as uh, fat unicorns. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In, in bad Latin, as as we get in Imperial Gothic, so uh, yeah, and they're gonna gonna be sort of uh, ally, ally with my my Rainbow Warriors a little bit, so um, uh, just for fun, you know. I've never invented so a time. You have a force of unicorns and rainbows. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And their 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 symbol will there'll be a couple of blended rainbows on them, and there'll be a, a variant Rainbow Warrior symbol, so that they they kind of blend together. Sure, and is this Titan Legion likely to fall from the grace of the Emperor, as your Rainbow Warriors are wanting to do? Uh, there may be one or two, that's fine. I, my friend recently included uh, um, one, he's doing a um, Soul Haunters. So my friend is doing a Soul Haunters army, he's converting you know the hell out of every single one. They're looking fantastic, because he loves spending... He wants a small elite force and he loves spending tens of hours on each miniature and uh, one of his recent miniatures is uh, a, a, a rainbow warrior that's that's gone over to the the uh, soul haunters and he keeps his uh, old rainbow warrior helmet on the back of his his bike now as a, a trophy <laughs> <laughs> and that's because he you know the the slight variant of the story that my friend lee is creating is to uh, have uh, the non-standard uh, warband that just roams about gets warriors and equipment from wherever it can, just maintains just enough to keep fighting. Uh, but the fight's the thing. And uh, it's, you know, as we've all discovered a little bit, and I've discovered a lot more during lockdown, putting putting bits of your friends' armies into your own armies, it, it's, 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 it's an extra special joy. <laughs> yeah, if you've got any regular opponents and you can include some of their paint schemes as your trophies yeah. or, you know, defeated models on bases, it's just a, a fun little touch, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, so, so they're the, the epic titans I've got. Um, I've also got a, a tactical squad of RTBO1s that are going to be Mentor Legion. Uh, again, as part of an old time challenge, but I've been wanting to do a Mentor Legion force for a while. Uh, and alongside them, I've got um, a squad of uh, five primaries and, uh, and a lieutenant as well. Do you even really get Mentor forces, or do you not just get individuals? It's interesting. The background varies. Uh, Certainly, if you go online, you go on Pinterest or, or Instagram or, or even Twitter, somewhere like that, you, you find big mental legion forces and they look awesome in their green and white uh, with the, the, 
the other chapter badges. But yes, um, it's it's interesting whether they they should be attached or not. I, I may sometimes use them in armies attached using Death Watch ones. Uh, yeah, that's that'd be an interesting way of doing it because for for anyone who's not aware, part of the the sort of law behind the Mentors Legion is this idea that they are literal mentors and yeah. um, the legion not the legion sorry chapter there yeah. but the chapter as a whole um it's quite often its members are dispersed across the galaxy yeah. and they're sort of like attached to other imperial forces including other space stream chapters mm-hmm. where they act as um not special so edu- yeah and also as educators perhaps specialists or like consultants almost the, the other thing that they do is they test out new equipment, which is, is, is one of the things they've dumbed down a little bit, of course, over the years as, as it's become more about not, not trying out new equipment and things like that. But they, they have this role where they may have variant equipment, and that's one of the reasons I was thinking about using Death Watch uh, for their roles. Yes, that'd be a good way of representing it if you want to do an actual more mentors force, like um, if they've come together again as a company or whatever for yeah. a particular campaign. And then I've got other little bits of work in progress on my desk, but it's all the usual stuff I've not made much progress on yet. Ultramarine Terminators and uh, a few more Flesh Eaters, uh, Primaris, uh, Rainbow Warrior Chaplain and stuff. But, uh, I, I think it's fair to say you've made plenty of progress. You can't feel yeah. bad at all about a, a few squads of guys you've not got around to yet. No, well, they're, they're the ones I'm working. They're the ones that's a work in progress. But the stuff I've completed since the last show, I mean, I've done quite a lot of Death Watch. I've got Death Watch Captain, three Intercept- Inceptors, which I did as as the three different wings of Dark Angels: the the Death Wing, the Raven Wing, and the uh, the Green Wing. Just because it, there's a story there, and but nobody's telling because it's a secret. Because they're Dark Angels. <laughs> um, I did five Death Watch Terminators. I did the first five of this squad, so I done quite a lot of Death Watch. I, I also managed to fit in just after Christmas uh, a squadron of three Rainbow Warrior Predators that I think are posted on the group. Which were fun to do. Just, just a casual squadron, I imagine. Just, a, yeah, yeah. Uh, but once you, yeah, I enjoyed it. It was fun. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I, one of the things I did was apply an awful lot of transfers. And I just, I spent two evenings applying transfers to all these tanks. It was fantastic. <laughs> Great amount of hobby joy there. Um, Whereas, uh, by comparison, since the last episode, I have painted one model. <laughs> Yeah, but you were on a more recent episode than me, to be fair. I mean, that is true. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always on the most recent episode, pretty much. So, I've managed to finish painting my Escher clan alchemist. Um, So, this is the, like, hanger-on for the uh, new House of Blades stuff. I say new, like a year ago now almost, it was (laughs) starting to be previewed, but then took a while to make its way to us um but yeah so i had a lot of fun painting her because she's essentially i mean i like to treat all, most of my necromunda gang as like character models you know where i want to put a little more time and effort into them just like than like my rank and file orc boy um but this one especially because she kind of stands apart from the gang she's not so much one of the frontline gangers she's one of these She's sort of a, um, a contractor almost from another um, aspect of the house, so from yeah. the um, the clan chemists, um, and she's got you know real sort of lab technician vibes to her. She does, yeah. I saw the photo you based on the on the 
she does look really good in, in, in that kind of sense where she doesn't blend in with the rest of the gang but she's clearly and distinctly uh, Escher nevertheless uh, oh yeah I mean the the sort of bright purple and pink like braided hair that she's got um, still very much marks her out as an Escher right. um, but then she's wearing you know these sort of like relatively clean pristine white lab coat and these sort of bright orange um, like hazard gloves and boots and stuff um, and then there were lots of little features on her all these you know vials and tubes and mm -hmm. um, medical scalpels and stuff she's got like one of these almost Edward Scissorhand gloves also like Freddy Krueger gloves <laughs> yeah um, so that was really fun and then she's got like two or three different lenses and scopes and eyepieces and she's got a little shoulder mounted sort of like spotlight piece or there was loads of little details on her and I just I couldn't not paint them is that what did it did she take a long time to get painted do you have to spend uh, quite a lot of time on her I mean relatively to say that she's one sort of like human scale model so she's not like a big chunky space marine she's only sort of like guardsman sized yeah. but she's got a lot of detail on her I mean her lab coat has sort of like filigree on it um, so sort of like a unicorn emblazed um, emblem in the corner of it um, there's a surprising amount of unicorns in this episode more than I was expecting <laughs> So you keep a unicorn count for each episode and see how. Um, but yeah, like she came together really well, and she's she's the only real piece that I've managed to sort of like finish off in the last sort of week or two. Um, I've had a few other things that are ongoing. So the um, <laughs> the looted gun wagon remains in the garrison yet again, and I feel like he's starting to stay as welcome now. But I, right. I'm going to get around to him. I've kind of sidelined him for a little bit. Um, mostly while I try to finish off these lava bases slash sort of like um, markers. Yeah. Um, they've been fun because I've actually been sort of um, cataloging each stage as I go by. So I'm going to put up a little um, Instagram tutorial on how I've done them once they're finished. But okay. at the moment, that's still a learning process with it. So I'm still deciding on what each layer and um, section of it's going to be because it's not just painting, you know. Um, base wash highlight it, I'm basing nine of these um, 40 millimeter bases so I want mm -hmm. them to look nice you know especially when there isn't actually going to be a model still on them the base is itself the oh, piece yeah. um, so I want them to look good so I've been trying to put extra effort into you know using the cork board to make them the using um, the technical paint to actually sort of paint in the lava flow which has then okay. been undercoated and then going to be painted up with layers to create blending and um, a bit of OSL effects um, but I am really enjoying them yeah the last lava thing I really painted because I do do default I think everybody's seen most of them on my group on the group the the, the sort of stone and, and grass bases that I tend to do but I did paint a lava elemental about 15 years ago and um, that that was a revelation with the, the sort of the inverse colors and uh, largely I did it by um, uh, layers and, and, and a little bit of dry brushing to make sure I was getting things in the right place but starting with the darkest colors and then working up um, uh, sorry starting with the lightest colors and then working up towards the darkest colors so that you got white as the very lowest color and black, black as the highest color which feels very counterintuitive 
mm. actually ends up giving a great effect and, and you you know while she can put some great skill in it and, and i'm sure yours will look awesome you can actually if you treat great effects in that, that way without too much uh, uh, effort yeah and i think it'll look good once it's finished i'm almost there now with the first couple of bases so hopefully by the next episode they'll be done awesome. um and then i can probably pick up this liquid wagon and get on with him and get him finished uh, and then about the only other thing i've done was i did find time to put together my uh, my brand new um, orc mech workshop that this time is actually going to be for my orc army because i have had the kit before but i sort of de-orcified it in order to just turn it into sort of like industrial imperial terrain okay um whereas now this is going to be fully sort of you know death schools mech boys workshop so that's going to be fun yeah, it's a nice piece of orc scenery, and that, that's the one with the uh, the tools on it, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's the one that's got the, uh, the Citadel mold line remover yeah, yeah. on it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, but then there was one other thing, which isn't so much sort of like hobby progress, um, but it was just a, a surprise to me that I actually got um, for Valentine's Day from the missus, um, and it was actually the pair of limited edition resin Horace Lubrical bookends that okay. were released last year. Nice. Yeah. Um, which was a complete surprise because I did not know she'd got me them. I, I didn't expect to ever own them, even though I saw them last year when they were released and I thought, oh, that's amazing. And it was just, I was kind of blown away to be honest. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Very nice um, and I love them. They look great. And I'm really pleased because they're going to go really nicely with the um, Hachette Books Legends collection. Okay. So, obviously, being the Horace Lupercal, they're sort of originally intended for the Horace Heresy series. Yes. However, I only have a few smatterings of the books I own myself. Um, whereas my partner, she got me these bookends because she knows I've got this complete like 100 book collection of black libraries like um, most popular publications or famous um, book series and they all form up to create this like huge panoramic um, vista of characters throughout the law and the books that are included in the series and now to top that all off once you know I pick a wall somewhere in the house that's big enough to have a hundred books in a line <laughs> I can now have a lovely sculpted resin Horace Lubrical on each end of it excellent uh, it should look really nice when you're able to get to the, get to putting the shelves up yeah um, so if you've not seen these before um, you can go see them on my Instagram because I did post a picture of them because <laughs> I just wanted to really just show off the fact that I had these things because I was just amazed <laughs> to get them. Um, so there's a picture of um, uh, like both Horace's side by side and there's another one with him um, staring down my Dark Angel's pop fig. <laughs> More <laughs> for a sort of sense of scale. But yeah, they're, they're really cool and um, I, I couldn't thank her enough when she got me them. So yeah, I thought that awesome. was an amazing little Valentine surprise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so that was uh, that's kind of everything really that we've been up to, haven't we, in our, our paint station garrisons? Yeah, yeah, really. Yes, and um, I, I assume you've not actually played any games of 40k strictly. 
Uh, no, strictly uh, not at all. No. Same <laughs> and not even, not even, not even attempted to with lockdown. It's just um, been trying to work through the backlogs and and read a bit more and uh, do some of the things that I don't always have time for. Yeah, to be honest, that's why I didn't even make it into the show notes this episode because I was pretty confident neither of us had had chance to play any games of 40k for obvious reasons. However, there is possibly a light at the end of the tunnel now, and maybe some games come March. We'll see. Yes, yes. Let's very much look forward to the Garden Hammer and then the full-on getting back to normal once everybody gets the all-important vaccines. Uh, so, which is uh, a real cause for optimism for a lot of people, I'm sure. So speaking of games, I think that is a good point for us to jump over to our spotlight topic. So we'll be back in a second, guys, discussing the brand new Maelstrom of War missions for 9th edition. You kids listen up now, listen good. The boss has got a message for you all. It looks like some of the boys have been joining the war before they got themselves a proper pen job. How are you kids supposed to get any proper crumping done without a lucky blue chopper or dead flashy shooter, eh? The boss is going to be breaking heads if he captures any of you without a proper paint job. So get your ugly hides to the paint boy over at Narrative Wah Painter. He'll fix you up good and proper, you hear me? Narrative Wah Painter is now open for painting commissions, specialising in good quality, army-wide standards, you can get a quote today by contacting me at narrativewargamer at gmail.com to discuss any potential hobby projects and so I can help you conquer your horde of grey plastic. You can also check out examples of my work over on Instagram at narrativewargamer. What did I say? Right you kids, get your loot in the truck and zog off to the paint line. It better be redder and faster when you get back. And make sure to tell them RedTube sent you. You might get some extra special. And we are back. So tonight we're going to discuss Milstrom of War for 9th edition 40k. So for those of you that are not aware, um, in the latest issue of White Dwarf, which is on sale now, I picked mine up at the weekend, and um, you'll be able to pick it up probably for a month or so in paper, and then after that it'll be digital download copies. But um, it's out there. Uh, so it's White Dwarf issue 461. They have officially provided us with some beta rules to play Maelstrom of War in 9th edition. And this is to replace that popular game mode that uh, was in previous editions that didn't really work, right? In <laughs> it did work, but it yeah. was very much... No, it had a few nicknames and uh, notorious... Drunken um, Commander mode, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, Drunken Commander, I think, was its most famous or infamous name. But yeah, so to give a brief overview to anyone who is perhaps new to the hobby in 9th edition or who would never ever... Uh, never gave Maelstrom of War uh, a whirl, as it were, in 7th and 8th. But, um, it, so it was one of these mainstay formats. Um, strictly speaking, it's a match play format, but it is and always has been considered a more sort of casual um, gameplay system as opposed to, say, the Eternal War missions of 8th or the... Um, like General's Handbook missions of 9th edition. 
Um, and one of the reasons why we're talking about it on, you know, primarily a narrative podcast is because this is still very much a very fun and um, just engaging way to play 40k, one that's been very popular with the community um, throughout 7th and 8th edition. And there were quite a few people that lamented its disappearance in the early days of 9th. And I know for a fact there are several people and several content creators out there who are very excited to see the return of Maelstrom of War. It's an interesting set of uh, way of playing the game. Certainly, if if the the sort of 40k culture that you're you're used to is is turning up somewhere, finding a pickup game and and rolling up uh, a scenario using these kind of uh, rules, it, it gives you something that you can play on that can be different every time. That does change, um, and um, and can be quite engaging. The, the my only drawback with it is is I think we all know that I quite like narrative games, and I like to you, you can retrofit a narrative after you've you've sort of played one of these battles, but it, it can be a little bit difficult to get into the narrative uh, during the battle to understand what's going on. But the way I found out that actually plays the best for me is, is it worked really really well for training scenarios. So if you've got like for example my Rainbow Warriors going up against Ultramarines, it's very difficult to say why well, why are they doing that unless one of the forces is is considered renegade in some way. And if you want to have just a, a training mission between them two where they, they're firing dummies or laser bullets or whatever you want probably don't do that with space rings they probably use live ammo anyway right? um but the it's a really good way to to simulate something uh, that's that's a, a slightly more um of a training scenario i've always found quite quite a good use of these i mean i think given the reservations you personally have had about the narrative of a maelstrom game in the past yeah. I think some of that is actually quite mitigated by the changes they've made to it to bring it up to date with 9th edition. Um, for example, one of the um, key things uh, about why it might have felt a bit drunken commander was because in previous editions, some of the objectives you would roll up each turn would be capture objective one, then capture objective three, then capture objective four, and it would be like randomly running backwards and forwards across the table to hold objectives. Right. Of one turn, you might get an objective to um, advance all the units out of your deployment zone. And then the next turn, you might get one to um, have three or more units in your deployment zone. Right. And that's that's why he gets that super cane. <laughs> yeah, it seems a little bit sort of like headless chicken almost running around sometimes just frantically trying to achieve these objectives. Whereas this new version, because of how they've sort of streamlined the way that the objectives work and the sort of categories of the tactical objectives themselves, you'll pretty much be sticking to a game plan overall, but the specifics of how you might score victory points in a given turn might vary a little bit based on how your current battle plan is proceeding. Okay, that's good to hear. That's good to hear they've addressed some of those concerns. Yeah. So the... So again, for those who haven't heard of Belgium before, the sort of the main gimmick of it is that rather than having a predetermined objective at the start of the game, um, such as the primary objective in a you know ninth edition matched game, um, instead at the start of each player turn, you sort of like randomly. It's often referred to as drawing because in previous editions you had a deck of these tactical objective cards and you would draw say three objectives for the turn. Obviously, there are no tactical objective cards yet, so it's a, essentially a D66 table. 
Um, and of these 36 potential objectives, you randomize three of them for the turn and you have to try and achieve them. So every game turn, you're going to be changing what your objectives are. And if you complete them, you'll score five victory points per objective or similar. And obviously whoever has typically completed the most of their objectives throughout the game will probably have the largest running total of victory points at the end. Although that isn't strictly the case, it will sort of be leaning in that direction. Okay. Um, and that is still the case in 9th edition, but it is a bit more organised, I should say. Perhaps a bit more focused in any given approach. Sober, perhaps. Sober, perhaps, yes. Sober, Commander. <laughs> um, however, that said, it, uh, as we mentioned earlier in the show, it is worth pointing out that these are beta rules. And as such, Games Workshop is encouraging feedback from the community. So if you play these rules, and if there's something that you feel is a bit off or different, or even something that you really like about it, and you just want to make sure it definitely makes it into the final version, then please do go provide your feedback to Games Workshop. And um, in particular, they've provided like a contact address in here. So if you can send any feedback you would like to send to 40kfaq at gwplc.com, that is where to send your feedback on the military war missions. Yeah, I'd also say if you do manage to play these rules, that means you've got a game in, and we really want to hear about it, so please post about it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Because uh, uh, we, we love hearing about people who are actually managing to get games in at the moment. It's, it's no jealousy there. We just want to hear about games being played. <laughs> so, yeah, also send your feedback to narrativewargamer at gmail.com. We'd love <laughs> to hear it. Um, and it's interesting that they do say in here that um, although they don't say exactly what the future publications of this will be the hint time could easily be a future mission pack so something in the vein of like beyond the veil imagine getting you know your um warmer 40,000 meals from a war mission pack yeah i think that'd be really cool yeah absolutely and then perhaps in the future we'll actually get some tactical objective cards um published with that as well which makes it a lot easier to draw your missions than making a note of them all rolled on these tables in White Dwarf. So if you are going to play them in their current iteration, bear in mind there's probably going to be a little bit of admin and paperwork, which probably a little bit more than a normal game of 40k, and will probably be a bit more than the final version of whatever this future mission pack is. Um, so yeah, I think... Oh yeah, so, so there's just one or two other things with the overview. So Technically, this is a matched play format, um, although, as say we've mentioned, it's often been considered quite the more casual, fun approach to a match play game, where introducing that element of randomness um, just make sort of takes the pressure off a little bit about having to make sure that your your you know your generalmanship or your tactics are absolutely on the bleeding edge to make sure yep. that you're squeezing every single point of advantage out of the primary and the secondaries and all the rest of it in order to play your just relaxing, friendly game of 40k. And it, as, as I think we've said before when we discussed Master of War in, uh, uh, in previous edition, um, it's, it's kind of bad form to roll it up and then adjust your army. You should be should be bringing your army uh, and then rolling up, up the mission, right? 
Yeah, so as we'll mention um, very shortly, it, you know, as written, you randomize up um, a mission, a deployment map, and then you randomize your objectives every turn. So it is inherently a very varied game format. Um, and, you know, one game can be completely different to another, even if you play with the exact same armies and the exact same table of terrain, you know. Um, so it is good for having pickup games or playing lots of games and reducing that staleness. You know, it's got a lot of replayability to it as a format. Yep. yep. Um, and as we mentioned, because it's not using the standard 9th edition scoring system, it doesn't use any secondary objectives. So you are just going to be scoring purely off what your tactical objectives are telling you. Um, however, I don't see any reason why this as a format couldn't be incompatible with um, Crusade. You could, I believe, in 99% of cases, pick your agendas, as you would do normally for a Crusade game, um, and just apply them on top of your Maelstrom game. And then if you achieve your agendas, you get your experience and so on. Um, and as I've suggested before, if you ever play any alternate missions to the provided Crusade ones, um, as a Crusade reward for the victor, just randomize um, one of the missions from a Crusade pack and provide that reward to the victor. Yeah, yeah, great idea. And that's all you need to make these potential Crusade games. Pick your agendas, randomize a reward for the winner. Done. It's a crusade game. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so then, we'll just break down a little bit more these tactical objectives on what they are and the kind of things you'll be doing in these games of Maelstrom to actually win your victory points and win the game. So, as I mentioned, it's a D66 table. So you've got six tables of D6 results, and each of these tables are assigned a tactical objective category, which basically means that these will be a typical type of objective you're trying to achieve. So for example, in the brought low category, all the objectives basically involve killing things um, or controlling um, more objective markers than your opponent. Okay. So for example, um, in here, um, the number one result is tear down their heroes. At the end of the turn, score eight victory points if the enemy units that had the highest power rating of units in your opponent's army that were on the battlefield was destroyed that turn. Right. Kill, kill the biggest, most uh, valuable thing. Um, whereas if you roll the six and you've got coordinated strikes... At the end of any phase, score five victory points if an enemy vehicle or monster unit was destroyed and it lost one or more wounds as a result of attacks made that phase by models in at least two units. Okay. So shoot, you know, if you shoot and destroy something with more than one unit, yep. you get five victory points. Um, in the holding the line category, a one is targets held. At the end of the battle round, score eight victory points if your opponent does not control any of the objective markers within your territory. Which um, territories are new things sort of added to the deployment maps for Maelstrom, but essentially it's your half of the table, not necessarily your deployment zone, right. but your deployment zone plus your 50% of no man's land. Right. 
Whereas if you rolled um, a five, you've got to hold your ground. At the end of the battle round, score five victory points if you control objective marker two within your territory. So unlike uh, most games where you might number the objectives one through six, in Maelstrom, both players have a set of um, one and two or one, two and three, depending on the scale of game that you're playing. So that means it can't be impossible because you don't have a number two in your territory. Exactly. You always have, um, you'll have an objective two in your territory because you'll yeah. have either one, two or three. Um, so uh, like we were saying before, it's less likely that you'll you'll get a drunken commander order who suddenly tells you to capture the objective marker in the dead center of the enemy deployment zone that's currently surrounded by all their units. If you've chosen hold the line categories of objectives, you'll more than likely be trying to hold your half of the table. Yep. Whereas there's a category for territory seizure, which is um, on a roll of a one, you get take it back at the end of your turn, score eight victory points. If you control an objective marker, sorry, score eight of eight victory points if you control an objective marker that your opponent controlled at the start of the turn. Okay. So that could be from either player's set of objectives, but it's just one that you are aggressively taking off an opponent. Yep. Or you could have rolled a four for lines breached. At the end of the battle round, score five victory points. If there are two or more units from your army, excluding aircraft, wholly within your opponent's deployment zone. So I notice with each of these tactical objectives, sometimes it's five victory points, sometimes it's eight victory points. Is there any kind of pattern to them? There is. So results two through six reward five victory points, and result one rewards eight. Okay. And that is true of all six categories. And there is a reason for this, and it's because one of the new stratagems that's available when playing Maelstrom of War for 1CP, you can change whatever you rolled to a 1 for that table. So you can always default to the what is considered like the most standard order for that kind of behavior. So for example, holding the line, if you roll a 1, um, you score those eight victory points if your opponent does not control any objective markers in your territory. Yeah, right. Okay. So you could always fall back on that ability to say, right, I'll score eight points this turn if I hold all my objective markers. Yeah, and I don't need to be taking my opponents. To use the stratagem. Yes. It'd be, in this case, it'd be one CP, and you can only use it once per battle round. So if you generate three objectives, you couldn't spend three CP to revert all of them to a one result. But if you'd one of those would rolled a one and another one was a six, you could you could end up having that result twice by using the stratagem. You won't do because all the missions they all specify that well okay, so in ninety percent of cases you won't do because missions specify that you'll generate each objective from a different category. Right, okay. Fair enough. And there is some edge cases to that where, yes, you could end up um, having multiple from the same category for the turn, but the general rules in here clarify that if ever you would roll a duplicate, you basically re-roll it. Understood. No, 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 that's fine. I just um, mm-hmm. seemed like an edge case that was worth exploring. Yeah. 
And there's some really interesting categories. Like there's one called Heroic Deeds, which is basically do things with characters, be it kill the enemy warlord, be it destroy units, be it cast psychic powers. There's even ones that's like applied tactics. At the end of any phase, score five victory points if a model from your army made any attacks that phase that destroyed an enemy unit and that model or its unit had been affected by a stratagem. For example, it was selected for a stratagem or a stratagem was used when that unit was selected to fight or shoot that you used earlier in the turn. Long-winded way of saying if you used a stratagem like Fight Twice or Mordaka or um, Veterans of the Long War, if you used a stratagem to improve the attacks of one of your units and that resulted in that unit destroying an enemy unit, yeah, you get five victory points. So you can see the sort of varied selection of things that these objectives can involve. It's not just going to be the same thing every turn. It can be, um, you know, capture objectives, hold objectives, kill units, get into table set their quarters, um, move in and out of um, def- uh, deployment zones kill things with multiple units, kill things with units that have had stratagems used upon them. There's one for degrading enemy units, like if they're a vehicle or a monster with a degradation okay. table, you score the victory points if you get them to drop um, a, a, sec- a section of the degradation table. Like, There's a lot of different things in here that you can be doing, which is why it makes sense to have an army list designed for all comers that can sort of engage on all fronts, can you know move around the battlefield, can take on all kinds of enemy units. No, oh, that's good. I do I do like building on generic army lists of that nature, so that's that's quite appealing. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, so we've hinted at a few of the things that are all different about how the games and the missions play based on what those tactical objectives are asking you to do. But we'll just run through now the sort of the pre-game setup, like preamble to playing a game of Maelstrom. Yep. So uh, the first thing you do is you roll to determine the deployment map, which there is a D3 table and it's pretty much your free classic deployments. So you've got your Dawn of War where you just long table edges, no man's land in between. Hammer and anvil with your short table edges, no man's land in between. And you search and destroy with your table quarters um, and your diagonal, so like no man's land. Right. But the the key thing that's different here is the addition of territory. So this idea that um, your entire 50% of the table is considered your territory, and then within that there is your deployment zone. And the reason for this is because when you deploy, your uh, when you place objective markers... Um, all the objective markers have to be placed in the no man's land area. So this is sort of a change to previous, uh, previous editions where it means you can't end up with any objective markers in your deployment zone. Right. So you're not going to start the game holding objectives two and four and then roll up, defend objectives two and four for two turns and score easy victory points. You know, it follows the trend of ninth edition where you have to get on these objectives. You have to, you know, really get stuck in and um, move up to them and hold them against enemy attack. Yeah. 
Um, so it's interesting that they've included the options for scale of game. Um, Maelstrom of War isn't actually intended for combat patrol gameplay. They do only include references in here and setups for incursion, strike force, and onslaught. Which I mean, I can understand. You know, combat patrol is probably a little small scale to be considered a maelstrom. Of war. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, but essentially, if you're playing incursions, are like thousand point game. You have two objectives per player. If you're playing anything above that, strike force and, and onslaught, you have three objectives per player. Yeah. Um, so once you've determined which map you're using for that game, or if you just want to pick one, if you agree with your opponent, that's fine. You then determine the mission. So you roll a d6 table to pick from one of the six Maelstrom of War missions, which we will get to shortly. But already you can see that between six missions and three deployment maps, that's already 18 different configurations of map and mission that you can play yeah. with Maelstrom before you even add in all the variables of the actual tactical objectives you'll be playing throughout, that, yeah. uh, throughout those games. Then you roll to determine attacker and defender, uh, and the winner of the roll-off decides um, if they're the RD attacker or the defender which is key because after you've set up the objective markers, the defender picks their deployment zone and the attacker gets to the opposite one. Okay. That's fair enough. Yep. Um, and there's some restrictions on objectives, like the objective markers can't be in deployment zones, they can't be in three inches of a table edge, and they can't be in 12 of another objective marker. So typically, you're going to end up with a relatively even spread of these objective markers across no man's land. Yeah. But yeah, I'm just wondering whether that will often end up with a very similar positioning because of that. I think it will. I, I think in terms of where they are on the board, it will be similar. The main difference it will make will come down to the terrain placement around them. So whether or not being you know six inches to the left or right means it is or isn't behind a certain wall or piece of obstructing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think it, that's the level of player interaction when it comes to alternating place in these objective markers and exactly where they are. Then this is the next new sort of addition to the way Maelstrom works. You then per mission because it'll define in each mission how many of these you do, but you pick typically three of those tactical objective categories. And those are the only ones that you'll be rolling from for that mission. Okay. So even though there are 36 possible objectives, in most games, you as an individual will only be randomizing between 18 possible ones. Yeah, that, that's quite good. You mean, when we looked at this in 8th edition... Uh... That was one of the things that you recommended is you reduce the sets that you're rolling from to make it more focused for your army. Yes. So because of the nature of the drawing a card system from a deck of cards, towards the back end of it for edition, Chapter Approve introduced rules that allowed you to basically deck edit and remove yeah. up to six cards from that deck. Yeah. Um, that is not um, a component of the ninth edition Milstrom because instead of having 36 cards in a deck and you can remove six, Instead, you're picking three of the six categories to roll from. So instead, yes. you only are using 18 potential objectives for yeah. that game, which already streamlines your strategy. For example, if you're playing Orcs, Tyranids, World Eaters, some very aggressive army, 
you're probably not going to choose the hold the line category. It would feel wrong. <laughs> Whereas, for example, hold the line would be great for a guard army or possibly Tau. Yeah. You know, somewhere where you can play a bit more into the strengths of the army list you're bringing, even though what you're trying to achieve will vary from turn to turn. You're not going to be sat there trying to cast psychic powers with Necrons or trying to, um, <laughs> I don't know, kill things in combat with Tau. Yes. Or trying to shoot things with corn demons. But if you do happen to be doing that, then you can choose different tables, right? And you can design exactly, it yes. however that forces. Um, so there's already a bit more control over what your random objectives are going to be. Um, and then um, after that, you've got your, your remaining sort of pre-game stuff with so declare reserves, transports, deploy armies, alternating units at a time, starting with the defender, and then you roll off to determine who gets the first turn. Now, technically, as written in White Dwarf, it's a roll off and the winner picks whether to go first or second. I would suggest using the new January FAQ where the winner of the roll off has to go first. Okay. Um, because I think this was probably sent to print and written prior to that decision being made in the FAQ. And I imagine um, in a later mission pack or version of this, it will probably be in line with the new first turn rule. Okay. And to be honest, I don't think it's going to make a huge difference to how the missions play either way. I just think it's sort of what, you know, how the new ninth edition missions are going to work moving forward. So I think it's worth adopting now, to be honest. Yeah, completely agree. I, I'm just, um, I uh, not got many games in, so I've not caught up with the the latest facts yet. So it's an interesting one for me to learn. Yeah. So then we're gonna just go over the six missions that you actually play. Now, okay. Four of them are what I refer to as the core missions because they essentially they're identical in every way but one, and that one thing is sort of like the extra special mission rule that's a little bit different, right. but. Four of these missions involve the same standard setup where both players pick three of the tactical objective categories. These will be the categories that they draw their missions from, uh, their, their tactical objectives from each turn. Whenever you generate um, an objective, you randomize a category from those you chose, mm. and then you randomize an objective from that category's um, six possible options. And you will, uh, at the start of each battle round, players will both generate three new tactical objectives. Um, now, this has two sort of major differences to the way that this was done in previous editions. The first is the fact that both players generate them at the start of the round, as opposed to individually at the start of their player turn. Yeah. Just means that things are active straight away. So, for example, if you're going second, and you get a mission to destroy something with a ranged attack or just destroy a unit, and you manage to achieve that in your opponent's turn, say through Overwatch, or they charge you and you actually kill them in combat, or whatever, you've already got those objectives there ready to achieve, so you could be ticking them off from the very start of the game, not just from the start of your turn when you generate them. Yeah, no, that's quite good. So that's a small but significant difference, and it's a good change. I, anything that keeps both players engaged um, during the your opponent's turn, I think, is a good thing. Mm -hmm. 
And then the second big change, and really I think this is the main major difference between 8th edition Maelstrom and 9th edition, and I didn't quite pick up on it until I reread um, this sort of article a second time. You do not retain any of your tactical objectives from previous turns. Right. Every battle round, both players scrap off what objectives they had and generate typically three new objectives. Okay. So that I think is a healthy change because it prevents you being stuck in a position where you're holding on to objectives that are really difficult or tedious to complete because they're doable, but they're just difficult. For example, slaying the enemy warlord, killing a psyker. What if you're fighting um, a chaos space marine force where the only psyker is the warlord who's yeah. sat in the middle of the enemy army? Yeah, yeah, I, I guess that, that's that's totally true. I, I, I guess it also provides an imperative to move quickly as well. Because if you want to do, claim the ones that you can claim, you have to do them now because there'll be new ones next turn. Mm-hmm. And this is part of when uh, this has made me go back and reread all the tactical objectives, and all of them do reference at the end of the turn if you did this, or at the end of the psychic phase if you did this, right. or you know whatever. So all of them are worded in such a way as if to say you only check it this turn and that's it. There's no. Yeah, the- there's no um, to them. Yeah, there's no when um, you do this, like when you destroy an enemy unit with a ranged attack, score a victory point or whatever. It's right. if you destroyed an enemy with a ranged attack this turn. Yeah, yeah. Um, like importantly, I looked at the um, the option for destroying the enemy warlord. In eighth edition, it would have said if the enemy warlord was slain in this or a previous turn, score right. you know x amount of victory points. In this edition, it does say if the enemy warlord was destroyed, uh, you know, at the end of this turn, the enemy warlord was destroyed this turn. Score. Um, so is, is there any turn. any discussion in these rules then about uh, unachievable objectives? Because clearly if you roll that in turn three and you kill the enemy warlord in turn two. There um, is, and this is um, a good healthy change, which I think should definitely make its way into the final iteration of these beta rules. And that is the unachievable objectives rule. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's written here as, if a tactical objective mentions a unit with a specific keyword from either your army or your opponents, and there are no units with that keyword in that army on the battlefield, then that tactical objective is considered unachievable. Right. Any time a player generates an unachievable tactical objective, they can instead select a different tactical objective from the same category to replace it. And importantly, that says you may select an alternative from that category. Yes. Um, but yes, it means in this case, if you kill the Warlord in turn two and you do this in turn three, at that moment in time, there isn't an enemy model on the table with the keyword Warlord. As it's considered an unachievable objective, you would redraw it. Yeah, no, that's really good. I remember when we were discussing this last in 8th in edition, I think we were talking with Dan as well at the same time, and we all had sort of different ways where we, gen- we would use these and different sort of 
and we call them cultural expectation, expectations of how you would deal with these kind of edge cases. So definitely, whether you like them or you don't like them, do do use that option to mail into Games Workshop and, and, and get your opinion expressed for, for so it can be codified uh, and made more normalized for everybody to play in the same way. For example, the very infamous one of Tau Psychers, as it were. Yeah. Like they, they only there's only one objective in here that references psychic powers and it's the burn them out um heroic deed objective. Right. And it says at the end of your psychic phase, score five victory points if psychic powers manifested by psyche units from your army cause enemy units to suffer a combined total of five or more mortal wounds that face. Now because as a Tau player you would draw this, you have no units in your army with the psyche uh, with the psyche keyword is considered an unachievable objective and you would draw a new one. Yeah, that's great. Or pick really a new good. one, even. So I had a quick glance through and I don't think there's anything that would typically be considered difficult or um, otherwise unachievable. For example, even the one that says... Um, uh, I can't find it now, but the one that talks about degrading the stat line yeah here we go yeah. crippling blow at the end of any phase score five victory points if a model from your army made any attacks that phase that caused an enemy vehicle or monster model with a damage table to move down to a lower row on their damage table right. when this objective is generated if there are no enemy vehicle or monster models with a damage table that have not already been destroyed or if all such models are already on their lowest row of their damage table generate a new tactical objective to replace this one. So I'm pretty sure they've covered every edge case where if something is drawn and it could be unachievable for you as a player, it is considered and listed as an unachievable objective, mm -hmm. which is a big step up from the selection of stuff that was in previous Maelstrom objectives. Yeah. So I do think that is one of the major, more, most positive changes. And and for for something like that where you've you, you know you do degrading your opponent, can you score that objective more than once in a turn if you uh, if you take down two different tank profiles? Uh, no, uh, it's it's always worded as if it's uh, one or more, or if caused them to lose this or more or whatever. It's sure. always you'll only score one objective once per turn, and you can't yep. have gener and you can't possibly have generated the same one twice. Because you would have regenerate, you would have picked a new one if you already had it for that turn. No, no, I understand. It's just, a, I think it was a, another one of the edge cases. that's interesting to explore. Yeah, I think they've been a lot more comprehensive in how these objectives are achievable by players, rather than just a very catch-all selection of objectives. Right, right. That's good to hear. Um, so yeah, so each of these four core missions are. You pick three categories. Each player generates three um, randomized objectives each turn. Um, so randomized from a category and then a randomized objective from that category. Um, and then each of these four missions has one sort of twist on that. So one of them is that from the second round onward, um, you generate a fourth objective if you hold the most objective markers or if you hold more objective markers than your opponent. Um, one of the missions is that after you've generated objectives, both players nominate one of their opponent's objectives, and that one is worth double points that turn if completed. Mm -hmm. 
So you'd want to try and nominate probably the hardest one for them to try and achieve, but it gives them an incentive to try and do it because if they do, they get double points. Or could possibly be one that might be very difficult that turn, such as slaying the warlord. You know, yeah. it, it technically it's achievable, but it might be very difficult. Um, the third mission, uh, after both players have generated them, you both nominate one of your opponent's objectives. It cannot be scored that battle round. Okay, so take out the easiest one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the sort of fourth variant is from the second round onward. The player with the least victory points generates a fourth objective. Okay. So that's sort of like your most commonplace Maelstrom mission. Pick three categories, draw three, do one slight little twist on generating a fourth one or vetoing one objective sort of thing. Yeah. And then the other two missions... You've got um, Complex Front. So in this mission, um, players pick three tactical objective categories, as is typically the case with others. However, once you pick your three categories, you also secretly note one of those three as being sort of like your your bonus choice or your favoritism or whatever you want to call it. Um, Now... This is because whenever a player completes an objective from their bonus choice um, category, they score an extra five victory points. And the first time they do this, they reveal that choice. So it's um, hidden initially, but once you've done one of them from that chosen category, your opponent then knows that any from that category are going to be worth extra points to you. Yeah. The other thing that uh, is slightly different in this mission is that rather than always randomizing which category you pick um, your free objectives from. In this mission, you will be picking one from each of your free chosen categories. Okay. Um, so in either missions, it's possible to have two hold the line objectives, um, but they'll have been randomized each time as to which one they were. In this mission, you would only have one hold the line mission um, objective because your other two would be from your other two categories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then finally, the uh, sort of sixth mission is the chaotic engagement, which basically is the there are no restrictions, everything is randomized and everything is in play. So in this one, there's no category choices. All six category types are in play. And each turn, players generate three objectives and you randomize which category and which um objective from that category you have so all 36 possible objectives are in play right but the one sort of extra twist in this mission is that the fixed determination stratagem costs zero cp now this is the one we were talking about earlier where you can actually no we didn't talk about this one earlier no not yet (laughs) so Fixed Determination is one of the other new stratagems that you can use in Mirstrom of War. So in all the other missions, this is available, but it costs 1 CP. In Chaotic Engagement, it's 0 CP, so each player can do it once per round, because it's a it's a once per round stratagem. But this is where you actually get to pick and keep one of the objectives from your previous turn, 
and carry it through to this next turn, so long as you didn't achieve it last turn. Yeah. So you couldn't kill the enemy warlord and then take you know keep hold of kill the enemy warlord. If you didn't kill the enemy warlord, though, say you were in combat with him and you know you fluffed your attacks and didn't down him when you expected to, you could pay one CP or zero in the case of this particular mission and keep that objective guaranteed in your next turn. That's a nice strategy, but again, just stops it being a little less uh, drunk. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, so basically, we've mentioned two of them already, but there are four new stratagems that are available to all players in Mirsham of War. And I think they all serve that exact purpose really well of just helping focus your missions, helping focus your game plan. So they all cost one CP. We've already mentioned that there's one of them that um, lets you change the random mission objective to a one on the table for that category, which, as we mentioned, is also always the most valuable uh, victory point um, objective. There's the one we've just mentioned where you can carry over one from the previous turn if you didn't achieve it, but you do like it and you want to hold on to it. And then we've got the quick thinking stratagem, which again, one CP, and basically you could use this once per round to add or subtract one from the roll on the random objective table. Okay. So you can try and push a three into either a four or bring it down to a two, if you know whichever whichever of those objectives is going to be best for you in that moment. Yeah, I see what you mean about bringing bringing more control. That's good. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the sort of biggest wildcard one really is 1CP New Intel. So this is only one use per game, but this lets you at the start, sorry, at the end of the battle round, you can basically swap out one of your tactical objective category choices for the game and change it to one of the ones you hadn't previously chosen. Yeah, that's good. I guess you can't use that with the one that you roll randomly, but... uh... Yeah, where all six are in play, but like yeah, yeah. all all five of the other missions, um, you are right, picking too. three categories at the start of the game, and you're only using them for the game. So for one yeah, CP, so. if suddenly you're finding you've pressed the advantage a lot, and you're actually in the middle, or your opponent's half the table, you might switch out your hold the line category for heroic deeds or something. Yeah. So there's that ability to adapt your strategy on the fly. But Yeah, that makes sense. That's a good one. Yeah, between the other three stratagems, the fact that you pick three categories typically rather than the full six, between those two factors really, more than anything, you are able to sort of have more of a focused game plan in these new Milstrom missions, even if the exact method by which you're earning victory points each turn uh, will vary. Oh, that's nice, I agree. It does seem like a... A slightly, uh, it seems to have slightly fewer random elements to it than, than the older versions, and it's perhaps something I could take to a little bit more than uh, than I have in the past. Yeah, and um, I think it's, you know, I think it definitely adds that sense of tactical flexibility that you have to demonstrate when playing a Milstrom game, but without feeling like you're just, you know, clutching at straws every turn or whatever completely yeah. random thing um, yeah. trying to achieve. 
So as an example of that, I was just going to generate a very quick example mission for us and like a first turn selection of objectives. Okay. Just sort of give an idea of how it works. So this, if we is were... Rainbow, this is a battle of Rainbow Warriors versus Orcs at 2,000 points, is it? Why not? Yes. <laughs> so, for example, the first thing we do is we generate a map. So I'm just using a you know random number generator here, but we'd be playing on a two on the D3, so hammer and anvil, short table yep. edges. We would be playing mission three, which is... It's a complex front one, isn't it? Oh, that's complex front, so that's the one where you've got all three categories are in play every turn, as it were, where you generate one per category, and then yep. um, you secretly note one of them to be worth extra victory points. Cool. So for the sake of argument, if I... I'm going to use the first three categories as my choice, and you use the second three. Yep. Um, so um, I'd be picking Brotlow, Raid, and Territorial Seizure. And Sounds about right for Orcs. Yeah. And you'd and be holding using... the line, Heroic Deeds, and uh, Eradication, which uh, doesn't sound too bad for Space Marines either. Yeah, especially when they're fighting Orcs. Um, so in this case... We've got our map, we've got our mission, we've selected our categories, and then at the start of the battle round, starting with the player who had the first turn, players alternate generating one tactical objective for each of their generated three tactical objectives, choosing uh, one from each of their three selected categories. So in my case, on my turn one, I would have two... So from my Brotlow category, number four. Uh, Overwhelm, at the end of the battle round, score five victory points if you control more objective markers than your opponent. Sounds fair, so I'm just trying to push into no man's land, especially if I'm going first, and I know this. Uh, I'm going to run forward to my Orc Horde and try and hold as much of the centre of the table and keep, hold more objectives than you. And if I don't, that means that you're in the middle of the table holding them, which is probably where I want you to be, because then I'm right on top of you. Yep. Um, my one generated from my raid category would be a free. Slay the defenders. At the end of your turn, score five victory points. If an enemy unit was destroyed that turn and any models in it had been within your opponent's territory that turn. So that would just be your half of the table. But given this is the first battle round, I think um, I would probably use one CP to try and push that up or down. By one point because I could change it to a one but that would be score eight victory points if I controlled two or more of the objective markers within your opponent's territory so unless I felt I had really fast vehicles I could get onto the objectives in your nomad land yeah um, I could try and grab those but I would probably try and push it um I might try and push it to push them out on a four, score five victory points if you control objective marker one within your opponent's territory. So if I felt that I could to jump a unit, for example, onto your objective one, then I could do that. Um, and then my third mission would be number two from Territory Seizure. Make a stand. At the end of the battle round, score five victory points if your warlord is within six inches of the center of the table. Uh, sure. That one I'd probably have to stick with. Maybe I wouldn't complete it turn one, 
but maybe I use the stratagem to hold on to it and I complete it in turn two if my warlord has been running up the center with his horde of orc boys. Um, and then I would probably secretly note probably raid, I think, as my bonus category because that's the one where I just have to get places and hold objectives mostly. So as an all-cord, that would probably be more in my wheelhouse than guaranteed destroying things or taking objectives from you, typically. Mm -hmm. Then how about yourself? Yeah, I think uh, just looking at them, I would probably uh, check the holding the line. Uh, would probably give me the best bet of, of gaining them because uh, holding fast and, and shooting down the orc seems like the kind of tactical uh, drive that I usually go for against horde armies but that uh, i can't say i've got 100 uh, situation of success there so i've got some little uh, six-sided dice here i think you'll be familiar with so if i roll there i get a four uh, for holding the line which is never given at the end of the battle round score five victory points if you control objective mark one within your territory so i think i probably would be able to do that um especially if i had, had initiative or i'd probably stick with that anyway and, um, and and try and achieve that one. It seems quite reasonable. So already we're uh, fighting over objective one in your territory. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Heroic deeds. I rolled two, and that would give me trading blows. At the end of any phase, score five victory points if a character model from your army made any attacks that the phase destroyed a character unit. Now that one seems quite hard for turn one. Um, hmm. If I think about the, the stratagems I could use, I could drop that to a one, which is cut off the head at the end of the turn, score eight victory points if the enemy law warlord was destroyed this turn. That also seems unlikely in turn one. Or savage duel at the end of the phase, score five victory points for character model from your army made any attacks that cause an enemy warlord to lose one or more. <laughs> so you're probably so this struggling is, with that one turn yeah, one. I think I am struggling with that one. So I think probably... Yeah, I'd probably stick with the two, the trading blows. I'd probably look to just get that over with next turn. But if there's the opportunity for one character to... Because all you need to do is make an attack that uh, destroy an enemy character. So maybe there's a possibility to do that with shooting. But uh, I don't know. Feels unlikely. Characters are user protected. So that's just one that I may not be able to achieve. And that's going to happen. And then what would you get for eradication? And eradication, I've also rolled a four, which is break their will. So you get with the eradication with, with several of the eradication uh, tactical objectives. You got you do different, or you've got different, slightly different objectives um, depending on the size of the battle. So we said the two thousand point game, didn't we? Which is uh, onslaught. Yeah. Uh, so break their will at onslaught level is at the end of the morale phase. Score five victory points if nine or more any more models were destroyed during that phase. So that's not so bad against Orcs, uh, even maybe 2,000 point game. Yeah, <laughs> maybe your probably... Orcs are a little less heavy on the infantry. <laughs> you might be able to find some units to make film morales though. Yeah, absolutely. But that seems like one that's achievable. The difference, uh, strike force level game, it's six or more enemy models gets you five victory points and incursion is three or more enemy models. Um, and that's the that's the, the variances for the different size battles in all of these uh, uh, eradication ones are the number of models you need to kill in a turn to gain the, the, the victory points. And yeah, that's that's pretty much how Militia of War plays now in 9th edition, or at least as it currently does in these beta rules. And 
I know I've been a big fan of Maelstrom of War in past editions. Um, I do think it is a very good sort of like, to be honest, an entry point to 40k. It's a very good way to just pick up and play games for anyone of any, you know, um, experience level with the game. Uh, and I'm really glad to see it come back in ninth. Uh, I think it was a shame to see it disappear when it did, but I understand why, because uh, it didn't quite translate very well. And I think this is a very good, faithful, and probably better version of Maelstrom of War that we've got now. And hopefully it will get only better still with the um, review of the beta rules in whatever time frame it is. Oh, that sounds good. It's been interesting to talk about tonight, Tony. As I said before, I've not been the biggest fan in the past, but it, it seems worth picking up and, and giving a go again as soon as we can get back to the game table. Yeah, I'll be interested to give it a go as well. I think it's particularly good. Maybe if you just want a, a game away from your, whatever Crusade Force you're using at the time, and you just want to have a pickup game with another army in your collection for one game, maybe just rock yeah. out a Maelstrom game. Yeah. 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 Cool. So that was our spotlight on Maelstrom of War. And we're going to move on now to our latest on Crusade segment. So if you hang around for just a second, guys, we'll be back with Dark Angels on Crusade. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles, and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on, and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram, at Narrative Wargamer, and over on Twitter, at Narrative40k, for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. We're back, guys. So hopefully you all enjoyed that look at the the brand new ninth edition version of the Maelstrom of War missions. Um, and now we're going to move on to our new returning segment on Crusade. And tonight we're going to be looking at the Dark Angels on Crusade. So, uh, Dave, you're more or less our sort of resident Dark Angel player within the. Uh, the podcast team. Yeah, it does seem that way when we talk with everybody online, doesn't it? But I don't think I've mentioned Dark Angels uh, in too much depth when we've recorded previous podcasts. <laughs> You've been keeping keeping them secrets, haven't you? Well, you know, that's, that's the way it is with the Dark Angels, right? <laughs> so anyone listening to the podcast, you're now officially inducted to the inner circle of the show. You now know that Dave <laughs> has some secret Dark Angels. Yeah, I've had them for a while. I mean, I... Um, for where my Dark Angels come from is was when uh, I think it was sixth edition was released for the Dark Vengeance box set. Um, I, I started getting back into 40k a bit more at the end of fifth, uh, and then into the, the you know the Dark Vengeance period. I think it was it's about 2011, 2012 when that came out. Around um, then, I know I got a copy of it. But yeah, I ended up keeping all the the chaos goodies. 
you see, they, they were the trendy thing. though. what everybody wanted was a cool, cool chaos, chaos models. But for me, um, I mean, they're nice, and, and I do have some of those, uh, of course. Uh, but I, I've always been an Imperial guy, <laughs> and Space Marines, and I like Space Marines quite a lot. So uh, having some and nicely sculpted uh, plastic Dark Angels was fantastic because I've always had this ambition to have one of each of the big main chapters uh, as a force as well as my rainbow warriors so and by that i mean uh, ultramarines dark angels blood angels and space wolves um I, I i i flex on imperial fists sometimes i want a force sometimes i don't it's the painting <laughs> the yellow that puts me off <laughs> see it's funny whenever i think about it none of the like founding chapters ever fully like grab me yeah. It's funny enough that um, Dark Angels are the ones which, if any, I've always liked the most. But I, I did briefly have a Dark Angel Slammer for a couple of years. Um, but I found that actually it was the aesthetic that I enjoyed the most about them because I preferred the Green Wing. I wasn't actually, yeah. I didn't enjoy playing um, with the Death Wing or the Raven Wing, and they were kind of the whole shtick of the army when it came to gameplay. So uh, I think yeah. I just like like Space Marines in robes. Yeah, I mean that, that that totally makes sense to me as well because uh, actually Greenwing is is the thing that inspires me the most uh, within Dark Angels, uh, the regular troopers where these, there are secrets in the chapter. They've got their own secrets, um, and and the the layers of secrets. So the one that's that's emphasised in the Dark Angels the most, and 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 it is emphasised in the New Codex as well, is you know the inner secret and the fallen and the inner circle who are trying to hunt them down and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure we'll get onto a lot of that uh, quite shortly. Mm -hmm. But um, it's the idea that actually individual companies might have their own secrets, and there may be other circles of secrets, but you wouldn't know, right? Uh, and the whole way that the the, the layers of secrets and the, the way they, they deal with the fall of Caliban sort of reflects the, the lodgers from the heresy in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, and um, I like that. Um, as a Dark Angel player, I never take offense when, when people say, oh, yeah, that's just another Chaos Army, right? Um, because you're never 100% sure, and there are elements of it, and clearly they did fall, and, um, you know, it's, um, yeah, that, that mix of, of secrets and not entirely knowing what's going on uh, and being lost in it, I kind of like that, and the the, the poor old green-winged troopers uh, on the ground floor that are not introduced into all of the circles of secrets, um, I that's always appealed to me, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, I... I always, I always quite like the fact that the that there are members of the inner circle who are not necessarily acting battle line members of the first company. So yeah. in particular, the I believe it's every member of the librarian, mm -hmm. the interrogator chaplains, or the yeah. higher ranked chaplains, and all the captains of the companies. Right. I believe are all in a circle. So I I like this idea of like the fifth company captain or whatever um being like having his little discussions with his uh, his company librarian and his company interrogator chaplain because they know what's going on but actually they're having to keep every like all the men um under them in the dark about certain aspects of the campaign they're currently executing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And um 
and also uh, elements of, of the Ravenwing as well. I, I quite like. I've, I've never quite got. I've, I've got some half-painted bikes. I've not quite got all the way of, of painting them. Uh, but the, the way the Ravenwing goes, they're the strike force. They're the ones that go in. And and the fact that both the Deathwing and the Ravenwing are, are larger than company size, it, it, it's always been implied that for, for quite regularly, because they need to be to be able to execute this search for the fallen. So then, how does that search for the fallen sort of manifest itself? in the game because i believe it is kind of the 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 defining element of the dark angels on crusade really isn't it the the hunt for the fallen yeah absolutely i mean i think one of the things that when you're looking at the the crusade elements of this new codex expansion it's not quite the right word what's called codex supplement that's the right word isn't it Mm -hmm. um is it adds the additional narrative elements that allow the hunt for the fallen and that's that's mostly what's in uh, in the crusade part of this book um, is is the ability to add that that fallen hunt into the narrative of your dark angels army, whatever kind of dark angels army is, whether it's like pure deathwing or the kind of greenwing I'm likely to do in the future, um, or or some some mix of of, of all three of the, the deathwing and the greenwing and the the ravenwing, or even um, any of the successor chapters of the dark well, angels. Absolutely, and any of the unforgiven chapters, and for those those not initiated in the secrets, the unforgiven chapters are the, the successor chapters of the Dark Angels, call themselves collectively the unforgiven, and they all hunt the fallen. So you can use uh, any of those, the, you know, the, the big ones that we've, we've heard of before, Angels of Redemption, Angels of Vengeance, or Consecrators, or Guardians of the Covenant, or some of the more obscure or, or newer ones, uh, the Cowled, Cowled Wardens, or the Prime Absolvers, or the indeed the unnamed, <laughs> which I always is quite like um, uh, some of the newer uh, primaries only chapters as well have also been inducted into into some of these uh, secret inner circle stuff so um, and it allows you to play with any of those chapters or, or even a combination would work of, of different um, shall we call them sons of the lion um, to uh, to fight together and bring that force forwards Absolutely, and the, the successor chapters can take anything the Dark Angels uh, can take, apart from um, some of the specific relics of the rock, which are the general relics um, that for any style of gaming um, uh, can't be taken, except with the use of a specific stratagem, but that's probably been covered by, by other people's review. This, this is more... It is worth pointing out that because this is a codex supplement, even if it is a rather significant one, that does mean that all the general crusade rules from codex base marines, base marines here, doesn't it absolutely and and i think it, it, if you're going to be serious about running a, a dark angels force as a as a crusade army i think you have to look at them both this only gives the sort of fallen track to that narrative but as we know dark angels don't just exclusively hunt the fallen even if that's the thing that obsesses them um they do fight quite strongly to uh, do the all the normal space marine stuff in if nothing else than just to maintain that cover um, and drive that forward and and all of the stuff that you've got in the crusade section of the space marines uh, codex is is equally applicable to the dark angels or, or the unforgiven chapters as well and i think it's important yeah. to, to remember that and mix them together and pull out the things you need to make make your your army right like we will um get round to catching up on some of the um already published nine fed codexes and we'll look yeah. in more depth at things like the space green codex on crusade but basically, if you're familiar with it, then you know you can still uh, take your oaths at moment. You can still earn your battle honors from there. Yeah. You can still like take your search for atonement as your battle scars and so on. You can inter your 
first company, well, in first, you're getting into your captains or whatever, into dreadnoughts, if they become wounded enough, yeah. all, all the uh, crusade goodness that is available to standard space marines is also available here. And if anything, this is yet another layer of, um, sort of narrative flavor to really add to a, a Dark Angel or an Unforgiven army. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. And I think, you know, there's all the normal stuff as well. There are Dark Angel-specific stratagems, relics, and warlord traits, especially a war, war gear and, you know, the successful the bits that a successful character can use. And they've got their own psychic discipline as well, which we've seen quite a lot, which is called interromancy to do with the, the interrogator chaplains. But again, that's all the general stuff. It's it's the, interesting um, to... The librarians, you mean? Uh, yeah, librarians, yeah. you're right. There might be some <laughs> more questions raised if the chaplains are suddenly... Uh, deploying yeah. psychic powers as you can tell because of lockdown i've uh, i've not actually got a game in yet but uh, <laughs> i think that shows a little bit here uh but it's you know as a psychic discipline it's quite interesting six powers as you'd expect in there uh, and they all they all have that very specific sort of uh, the, the librarians work with the interrogator chaplains and and they have that same kind of interrogative feel to, to most of those um, apart from one called trifaniation which is um is is the act of putting a hole in somebody's head for medical reasons but the psychic power uh, has a very similar sort of effect uh, that, that name particularly it seemed very 40k and grimdark to me <laughs> just just in case anyone needs lobotomizing absolutely and you can do that on the battlefield with your psychers uh, but i think the uh, let's move past that one <laughs> i think the the main thing that makes uh, the the core of the the crusade rules the dark angels is is the hunting the fallen uh, and that's what the section in the book is called uh, and if your force contains any dark angels or, or unforgiven successor chapters um you're required to keep a track of, of what they call an unforgiven points total um and we've seen this with some of the other books right um that we've <laughs> yeah. been covering. i uh, think it's fair to say that this is becoming a relatively recurring theme um where tracking an additional system of points is something that is quite common across the various crusade rules so we've now got um unforgiven points um yep. we've got investigation points we've got xenotech points we've got flaw points in the blood angels crusade like there's various things it seems like typically i think most armies once we get through the whole sort of round of codexes will have um your core like requisition points, your your tally of things you use for Crusade, mm -hmm. um, your campaign point that you're following if you're playing in a particular given campaign. I'm sure Plague Purge is probably going to come with some things such as um, either infection points or possibly um, vaccine yeah. points or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, and then you could quite possibly have a faction-specific uh, point thing to be following. So be it um, flaw points, unforgiven points could be, mm -hmm. I don't know, um, soul points for Drukari, yeah. maybe collecting souls. Who knows? We'll see what comes um, along with those. But I think I think the effect of it is you may actually be tracking more than one of these point totals. So if you're playing a Dark Angels or, or Successor Force in um, the Prior Nexus, you're going to have investigation points and unforgiven points that you're tracking separately, uh, for example. That would be quite an interesting one. That's a, that's a lot for their uh, chaplains and librarians to keep track of. Several investigations yep. on the go at once. Absolutely, <laughs> keep them all interested. Uh, don't let them don't let them secrets out. That's all. Okay, that's what so, it's about. 
how then do unforgiven points work? So you you accrue them over battles using agendas and and stuff like that. I think there's a couple of um, uh, of battle traits and stuff that, that actually help with the, the the points as well. But if effectively you rack them up, once you've got twenty or more unforgiven points, you can attempt an assault on the fallen. Um, so what an assault on the fallen is is a specific uh, scenario. <clears throat> that you can take it's not really a scenario it's really a combination of rules very much like we've talked about in the previous edition where you may pull several rules together to make a scenario so it'd be a normal game against your next game in in your in your crusade against your next opponent but what happens is <clears throat> you can only take dark angels units so if you've actually got a mixed crusade force whether imperial guard and uh, dark angels units um, you can only take your dark angels ones or your successor chapter ones uh, to hunt for the fallen you're not going to take outsiders with you i think that's a really cool touch that um when you sort of you, you wrote that in the notes i thought yeah. oh that's really interesting because i don't think i've seen a huge instance of references yet to the fact that people could be running like soup crusade forces right. so you say you could just be having an imperial keyword crusade and that you could include guardsmen dark angels custodes whatever right. and although they're on your order of battle for your collective force if you're going to run your hunt the fallen mission or capture the mm -hmm. fall assault on the fallen do do something horrible to the fallen mission um yeah. and you're only allowed to bring unforgiven space marines to that mission because they wouldn't That's be right. allowing any other imperial forces to be involved they wouldn't be telling the attached inquisitor what they were doing would they <laughs> <laughs> that's cool i believe um it's going to kill me now that i can't remember the name but i'm sure i've seen someone in the facebook group recently who's actually doing this where they've got an imperial a mixed imperial crusade force they've been playing some games with yeah yeah, I didn't look that up before we started this conversation, but I remember oh, that as well. Apologies. That's, we'll find, we'll yeah. find out who it is and give them a shout-out in the community shout-outs later. Yeah, absolutely. Because that, that, that was really nice. I mean, Soup has that, that negative connotation, but the force that he's been posted up uh, did look really nice as a combination. Fighting against Eldar, I think he'd, he'd got pictures on, right? Uh, yes, I think that was um, the last sort of game he played. Anyway, I'm distracted because we should be assaulting the Fallen now. So, um, we'll capture the Fallen. and. Um, the once you've got 20 points you can attempt this once you attempt this you, the you unforgiven points gets reset to zero you have to go and start looking for other things and then you move forward but the other effect apart from just taking your um can only take your dark angels you've got to use a specific uh, agenda called capture the fallen um, and I'll, I'll mention that a bit more in a moment um, but the other thing that happens is your opponent's army must take one fallen model which can either be captain where they the, the chapters replaced with fallen or a librarian again where the chapters replaced with fallen and both of those are the standard profiles from the uh space marine codex or or cipher uh, so any of those individual three models uh, okay yeah uh and they get added to your opponent's force now there's there's a designer's note bit here that's uh, that's worth thinking about as well when you're doing this so um using a, a fallen miniature to represent it's really good that you can lend to an opponent but also double check your opponent first that they're happy to do it <laughs> because it might not make sense if me and you were in a campaign having cypher turn up and help your orcs just feels a bit narratively odd i mean it could be justified and if we're all happy that's fine 
But it, it, it not not quite right, is it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I could imagine scenarios where, say, Cipher in particular has, you know, mm-hmm. it's more perhaps he's been hiding out at a location that has now just been overrun yeah. by an, you know, a local Orkwa at the time that the uh, angels have managed to actually pin his location. In fact, that's probably why uh, they've managed to find him right now because he knows he's got an opportunity to escape during the mayhem. Yeah. Um, but I know what you mean. Maybe it's a bit more of a push to say he's sat there in the middle of a you know horde of tyranids, <laughs> and they've not quite um, clocked him yet. Um, but I mean, first of all, if you're playing with any uh, opponent using imperial or chaos forces, then fits right in, regardless of what it is. You know, he could, absolutely, he could be masquerading as any potential or false ally to them. But um, I think it wouldn't be on beyond the realms of possibility. I could see a scenario where, um, say, Eldar were perhaps harboring him. Especially or, Dark Eldar. Yeah, especially Dark Eldar, or Harlequins as well. I could see yeah. them having some shady deals with Cypher or Overfallen. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. Worth, it is worth pointing out that, you know, the whole questionable allegiance thing also applies to the fallen themselves. So yeah. whilst I imagine, you know, certain craft worlders would not be associating with half demonic, clearly god worshipping fallen, there would probably be some others who are more just, you know, mercenaries of our home in the stars who Absolutely, perhaps, yeah. You know, the Eldar Corsairs or whatever would be more willing to shelter or aid in their flight from the Imperium. And that might be why it's more appropriate for your opponent to take a captain or a librarian um, as, a, as a fallen um, to work with their force, if that's what makes more sense to the narrative between you and your opponent. And uh, I imagine as well, whilst it says librarian and captain, I think it's probably more meant to represent that, you know, these are 10,000-year-old individuals who've been, you know, on the run from the Imperium their entire lives almost and it's probably not so much that every single fallen you come across happens to be a captain from the old legion it's probably just more the fact that he's an experienced veteran space marine yeah although let me uh i, I don't want to come across because i'm likely to sound like this now as an uber fluff nerd about the dark angels <laughs> but actually not all of the fallen have been running around the galaxy for ten thousand years gaining experience oh. Yeah, when they were sc- timey timey wimey stuff, yeah, timey wimey stuff. When they were scattered through the warp, some of them may only just have appeared. So, but they've got all their fresh memories of being, um, you know, heresy era um, space marines. So they're not. None of them are incompetent or incapable, of course. But not all of them have been uh, danced around the galaxy avoiding the dark angels for ten thousand mm. years. True, but yeah, I think it's just meant to sort of represent. You know, this is a particularly yeah. challenging and skilled um, Astartes. So yeah, he could be psychic or not, he's still, you know, a threat. Yeah. But, you know, the narrative is not the only thing that you can use to persuade your opponent to do this. Uh, they get the, the fallen character um, for zero power rating. Uh, doesn't require a crusade card or anything like that because he's only in their <laughs> army for this, yeah. this one battle. Cipher for free. Yeah. Although he can't, uh, he's not added to any detachments, obviously. Uh, he doesn't add or benefit or prevent any of those abilities that say, if every model in your army is yeah. so a Dark Eldar, you get to do this. It, Cypher can be there and it's not going to he's, stop he's those one kind of these of um, unaligned 
um, kind of models. I, I know he, he technically has keyword fallen as opposed to yeah. unaligned, but it's that same premise of, you know, doesn't go breaking any um, yeah, structures absolutely. for the forces that he's fighting alongside at that time. And, and interestingly, you can't set the fallen model up in either uh, reinforcements or strategic reserves. He basically has to start on the board. Yeah, he's been uh, found, he's been cornered, yeah, and he's going to have to do something to get himself out of this scrap. But your opponent also gets a, an additional agenda. So they get an agenda called Assist to the Stranger, uh, <laughs> which uh, it says if the fallen model is still on the battlefield at the end of the battle, your warlord gains three experience points and your army gains one additional requisition point. So there's a real incentive for your opponent to, to engage with this, this on you. That is good. I mean, the yeah. requisition point alone would be good, but even bonus XP for your leader. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so they're the motivations for, for taking them in. Um, the the, the and then you just play out. It'd be a normal mission apart from um, there's there's, no, there's nothing about which mission you have to play or anything like that. It's just that he's on the board. The Dark Angels have got to, can only take Dark Angels and have got to take uh, the, the agenda, the specific uh, agenda. Uh, and, and your opponent gets this additional assist, the, the stranger agenda. Uh, otherwise, it plays out as normal. That's quite cool. I mean, I, I can already see some scenarios in recent publications that would work brilliantly for this. Uh, the one that jumps to mind for me is from um, Phoenix Rising, um, okay. where it, the original scenario is the one where Yvraine is meant to be fleeing from right. Imperial forces, and she's trying to reach this webway gate to the other end of the table. Is that the and one then, where the board evolves as she's running along? No, it, it stays still, and she just has to try and get to the webway gate at the far okay. end. But the dark El there's like a dark Eldar strike force that pops out of the webway gate before right. she gets into it and she has to fight through. Right. Now I could see that scenario being repurposed as the Dark Angels, minus their Deathwing component, pursuing the Fallen, who has been escorted mm -hmm. by whichever army the opponent has, trying to reach the far end of the table to direct, you know, um yeah. extraction point. Yeah. And the force that appears on the exit table edged at the last minute is your deathwing units yeah i could see that yeah, being a really cool good. way to run that scenario yeah absolutely but like i say it's it's really good that the aspect of including the fallen for this mission is like a plug and play additional model and agenda yeah. so it can kind of be added into any given scenario yeah absolutely and and the other thing i realized is that agenda is in the general agenda section for uh, for Dark Angels. So if you're in a really fortuitous situation where you're playing uh, a Chaos Army that has fallen in it, you could still take that agenda, you could still try and achieve uh, some of those same uh, points there. And um, so, so sorry, even, what is the Dark Angels agenda then? So you, you explained what the... Yeah, sorry, I didn't... Them alive. Yeah, so what the dark, right. what's the Dark Angel player actually attempting to do? So, so the agenda is called Capture the Fallen. And the rules text is keep a capture the fallen tally for each unit from your army. Add one to a unit's capture the fallen tally for each time it destroys an enemy fallen unit. Each unit gains three experience points for every mark on its capture the fallen tally. At the end of battle, if any units from your army have gained their capture the fallen, add any mark on the capture the fallen tally, your warlord gains an extra three experience points. So every unit that takes out the fallen plus your warlord are getting bonus experience points 
So that means it with the with the you know if you're hunting the fallen, you're giving them an extra fallen. There's just one on the table. If you're facing a chaos army that's taken fallen units, you you may have the opportunity to gain more. Uh, but that that's you've got to look out to do that, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I do know that there are some fallen players out there. Um, I can't remember if it's Ben Bailey, but I'm sure one member of the Warhammer community team has a natural fallen army. Um, but whoever it is, like, they are out there. They are yeah. perhaps quite on theme, hard to find. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm aware I have got, and it's in my painting queue, a few, few armies, a few squads down, but I've got a, a squad of fallen. It's, it, it, for a long time, I didn't actually convert uh, anything. I built things pretty standard, just minor conversions for weapons and head swaps and stuff like that. But the first time I really properly kicked back, intentionally purchased two different kits uh, to do something, was to build a a fallen squad. And I bought the Mark III plastic space marines and the uh, plastic robe space marine veterans. I don't think you can get anymore. Uh, and I built a fallen unit out of those two kits. Um, and I've got a fallen unit and cipher to go with them. So. Um, I'm very tempted to do this now. Move them up the painting queue because of uh, reading the Dark Angels Codex after it's been released. <laughs> well, I mean, I think if nothing else, I think this is a really cool reason for Dark Angel players to buy even just Cypher. It gives yeah. them a reason to include that single Cypher miniature in their own yeah. collection so that if and when they're playing their Crusade games, they can go, here you go. Use my cipher for this mission because I've you know acquired enough unforgiven points. And um, and even if you don't want to go out and buy cipher, I mean just paint up one of your your standard dark angels with black armor and put in on one side as your your fallen uh, your fallen that you're going to lend to an opponent. Yeah, yeah, that works too. I think it, I think it'd be some real good modeling opportunities for something which will get use. Yeah. even if it's not every single game and obviously it's not going to be part of your army as such but it's part of your collection for that army yeah. I mean it's um, it gives a really good modeling opportunity for people here and I have to say it did just cross my mind that I think one really cool thing you could do if say you were using Asriel himself mm -hmm. um, and you were then doing a Hunt the Fallen mission you could possibly take Cypher and play the um Demise of a Legend scenario. We just covered on the, the last one episode. that you talked about in the last podcast, yeah, where they have, get twenty five points each. Yeah, twenty five wounds apiece, and have the epic duel, and actually have Azriel yeah. versus Cipher rather than that opponent's warlord for that game. That would be, be pretty cool. cool. The only disappointment there, the only disappointment in this whole book, really, has been the fact that they have still not re-sculpted or re-released Azriel. Uh, and in fact, the picture of him in here painted He's is tiny now, isn't he? <laughs> he? He is, and it's. I'm sure the one that's available now on the web store is the fine cast one. I'm fortunate enough to have a, a metal one which is half painted, uh, and I should get finished as soon as possible. But it's, um, yeah, it's an old model. I know I've seen various conversions from Primaris models that people have made for him. I know the um, the current. Um, I say current. The original Primaris Chaplain is one that's had been a good basis for him a few times because it's the whole robes, but with a stepping forward in one arm raised, like kind of yep. like Asriel is in his original pose. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the the one thing, the, the only thing I noticed, he doesn't have a Watcher in the Dark with him. And of course, when I bought him in original metal, he had a Watcher in the Dark with him. <laughs> but I'm sure I can repurpose that for other reasons in this book to go with a Deathwing or similar. <laughs> So, 
Uh, so we've covered the two very specific yeah. Fallen-based agendas that are kind of revolving around having acquired the um, 20 Unforgiven points. So I assume then the rest of the Dark Angel unique agendas are probably going to be the main way that you acquire these points. Is that right? Uh, yeah, absolutely, Tony. That's right. Um, and But they, they, they play into different ways of... Uh, they're also experience points for, for different ways that they use play. So uh, there's one, two, three, four, five other uh, agendas listed here. The first one, none must know. Uh, at the start of deployment, your opponent must select five units, excluding Dark Angel units. Each of these units can be from their army or your army. If five units cannot be selected, as many units as possible must be selected. At the end of the battle, gain one unforgiven point for each of these units that have been destroyed. So that is to say, you're taken to the battle, and there's there's going to be secrets revealed, and you've got to make sure some of those enemy units, or perhaps some of your allies, do die <laughs> uh, as part of the battle. I've always wanted a reason for my guardsmen to actually die in battle, yeah. and yeah. it be of value to me. <laughs> So to take those Dark Angels with Cadians, you can still paint green things, Tony, and you can still make that happen. <laughs> That's cool. Like I say, another little nod here to actually having a potentially mixed Crusade force. Um, yeah. I think it'd be cool to see more of these going forward. So yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah, uh, another one is uh, Encircle the Foe. So, and this is a Ravenwing-specific one. So at the end of the battle, you can select either three or four friendly Ravenwing units from your army, and you select them at the end of the battle is important, uh, excluding aircraft units, but uh, they can be Ravenwing. For each unit selected must be wholly within nine, inf nine inches of a different corner of the battlefield, and each of the selected units gains two experience points. So if you can spread your Ravenwing out across mm -hmm. the board so that they're close to each of the corners at the end of the battle, they can gain extra experience points. Okay, yep. So sort of like, you say hold all the different table corners, but like close to the edges rather than the center yeah yeah so that speed of attack uh those feints that are described for ravenwing the, the, you know the going in uh drawing them out spinning past the edge of them firing into them and moving away again before they get shot up all that kind of stuff that ravenwing are described as doing is, is what that's supposed to capture and very much the idea of no escape like they've got the foe surrounded so if yeah. there is any fallen or anyone who knows anything about the fallen within them they're going to be able to you know, capture them and interrogate them before they get away. Yeah, although that's just two experience points. That's not um, additional unforgiveness. Oh, is that not? So, uh, so sorry, did you say that none must know provided? Um, that provides unforgiven points for each unit that doesn't survive. Encircle the foe just is experience points for the for the, the okay. Raven Wing. There's so another one. Sorry, go ahead. None must know could have potentially bagged you five unforgiven points in one game. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right, so which one's next? Uh, so another one that doesn't give you uh, unforgiven points is the Deathwing Cometh. So if a Deathwing unit destroys any enemy units on the turn it's set up in the battlefield using the Teleport Strike ability, that Deathwing gains two experience points. If the Deathwing unit destroys any character units, that Deathwing unit gains three experience points instead. So they get some experience for striking in and blowing out a unit, or, or if they kill a character, um, then they get three experience points instead. So showing up and doing what Deathwing do. Right, right. So they, yeah. they just builds experience, but again, no one forgiven. Um, but the other two can uh, agendas can give unforgiven points. So Dark Rumor 
is another good one. If the enemy warlord is destroyed by an attack made by a Deathwing, Ravenwing, or Inner Circle unit, that unit gains three experience points and you gain three unforgiven points. If the attack was a melee attack by Deathwing, Ravenwing, or Inner Circle, you get five points instead. So you get in there, you get a chance to, to question them as you're hitting them with your sword to death. So again, <laughs> potentially up to five from that. Now, yeah, um, just a quick note. So we know that there are categories of agendas and you can't select the same agenda from uh, multiple agendas from the same category. Right. What is there any crossover between non-Muslim and dark rumor? So all of these are described as a dark angel's agenda. Okay, right. So you could, in theory, only take one dark angel one. agenda. Yeah. yeah. And is, is that the case? It doesn't say anything like, um, I haven't got a book to hand to check um, the types, but do you know what I'm talking about? Where there's one yeah, I do. Right at, the, right, the top of, yeah, right at the top of the agenda section here, it says, if your crusader um, includes dark angels, units, you can select an agenda from the dark angels agendas listed below. This is a new category of agendas, follows all the normal rules for agendas. For example, when you select agendas, you can't choose more than one. Archangel's agenda. So if you've got the ability to choose more than one um, uh, agenda here, then you can't um, you can't okay. uh, you would have to go to the Space Marines Codex or yeah. somewhere else to choose So realistically, you're looking at only being able to take one agenda per game that's going to gain you any unforgiven points. Yeah, yeah, I think And so. that's probably going to cap out at five. And, okay, but that's also interesting then that if you say stuck to taking encircle the foe or the deathwing come up as your dark angel agenda then actually you don't have to acquire unforgiven points you could play your dark angel crusade and yep. play it just with you know experience battle honors the space marine agendas stuff Absolutely. like that and yeah. the, the whole hunt for the fallen in real world context is entirely optional even maybe just the, what you're yeah, if you wanted to use your Dark Angels force being a, a feint and other forces are off hunting the Fallen, uh, absolutely, that would enable you to do that. And I think I should say as well, the agenda, the Assist the Stranger agenda that, that your opponent might get if, you, if you're doing the capture mission is actually a Fallen agenda, not a Dark Angels agenda. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's one that's beyond the category of anything else I likely to have. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, but that's, that's interesting. Okay, cool. Um, and then I believe is the sort of one more unique one. One more, and this is the most uh, the most uh, grim, dark, forty k of all of these, uh, which is a mental interrogation. So drilling holes in people's heads again with this one. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> so um, keep a mental interrogation tally for each Dark Angels librarian unit in your army. Add one to a men unit's mental interrogation tally each time it successfully completes the following psychic action. Add three to its tally instead if it completed with a psychic test of 11 or more. And there's a psychic action here called mental interrogation. Warp charge four. Uh, one Dark Angel psychic character from your army can attempt to perform the psychic action in your psychic phase if it's within 12 inches of an enemy character unit. At the end of the battle, each unit gains one experience for every mark on its mental interrogation tally. If all of the mental interrogation tallies is four or more, gain three unforgiven points. If it's eight or more, gain six unforgiven points. Right. So yeah. um, being an action, if you had multiple librarians, you could only do it once per librarian per turn. No, you sorry, can only do it once per... Once per turn. Army. Yeah, once per yeah, turn. Yeah. 
but because you can get one or three if your psychic test is 11 or more um, yes. you could potentially get a total of three times the number of terms um, total of what 18 or maybe uh, 21 yeah. And obviously there'll be ways to manipulate that dice roll, be relic, stratagem, special rules, whatever, you know, things yeah. to try and increase your um, psychic roll. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, and in interestingly, where the others gave three or five points, if it's it's three or six, uh, if you gain eight or more uh, of these uh, mental interrogation tally. Right. So technically mental interrogation is the quickest way to earn um, potentially earn unforgiven points and only marginally you know a maximum of six instead of five but one of those five you know or six perhaps seven turns of, of your 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 game um has to have a psychic test of 11 or more and of course that's only possible only 12 times right on uh and you need you to be so close to enemy characters and so on but yeah 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 absolutely so um i think is perhaps I, it looks to me as the riskiest but the highest reward one for gaining mm. uh, unforgiven points. Okay, cool. So we now know how it is you use these new agendas to earn uh, unforgiven points. We know that once you yep. hit twenty of them, which probably means if you're trying to earn them and you're putting that effort in in game to game, you're probably looking at maybe every five games, roughly. Yeah, I would think so. Five, or five or six games you can to... have assault the fallen yeah um at which point you get to provide cypher or one of his companions um yeah. to your opponent to use um in game i think that's a quite a neat little gameplay loop there to show you because i think over a crusade even if you've got a pretty lengthy crusade and say you play 20 games you know in a year so you, that, that's if you're playing you know fortnightly at a gaming club and you all you do is play dark angels for that full year like yeah. you you're gonna get about four opportunities potentially capture a fallen um, yeah so i mean i think i mean, i feel like that probably fits relatively on par with the opportunities and the sightings that the dark angels have across their campaigns yeah i think so i mean there's other agendas from the space Marines codex that are going to be useful you know quest for atonement angels of death recover genes here they're all going to be appropriate as well and you can build your narrative out of those but only only these these three out of these uh, will actually give the give those opportunities to capture the fallen and maybe we should move on to the um the benefits of doing that because i think one of the main benefits of capturing a fallen is oh, okay so there's actually another stage so once you get yeah. fallen, um so is this presumably leading on to something in the requisitions that you can do once you've captured them absolutely there's a, a zero requisition point uh, requisition called interrogation so purchase the requisition after a battle in which units from your army destroyed any fallen units excluding cipher you cannot purchase this requisition more than because you don't actually manage to interrogate cipher because he always gets away right <laughs> yeah uh, you cannot purchase this requisition more than once after each battle select up to two of the following from your army excluding name characters uh, one interrogator chaplain and one death wing librarian uh, then roll 2d6. Uh, on a 2 to 9, the Fallen is given the final judgment. One of your units selected can gain a battle trait from the table below. There's some specialized battle traits as part of this requisition. On a 10 or more, the Fallen is confessed and both units gain a battle trait. And I guess you can paint another black bead on your interrogator chaplain, right? Mm, um, yeah, nice touch. Yeah. That. Uh, that, I made that up. That's not in the text of the book. No, that's, <laughs> that's a really clever idea. Yeah. Um, so just 
just to explain to anyone that doesn't know, the black beads are the sort of like um, a little trophy, aren't they, to designate yeah, yeah. how many of the fallen that individual chaplain has managed to get to repent. All of the interrogator chaplains have a, a zarius, a, a chain of beads and a, a little uh, sword uh, cross of the dark angels hanging from it. And every time they, they get a confession out of uh, and a repentance out of a, a, a fallen, they can add a black bead. Um, Although it's I worth think... knowing that no, no single chaplain has made very many of these black beads. No, I think the most successful has like 10 ever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so the, on the battle traits below, um, the, each unit in your order battle can have no more one of one battle trait from these tables. Um, so make a note on each unit's crusade card, etc., and increase the crusade points by one. Uh, so for the interrogator chaplain, they've only got three they can choose from. So they can either add three inch to the range of the auras, which is is rather nice yeah. uh, for for chaplain. Uh, they can know one additional litany from the litanies of battle, which again is is great for a chaplain. Well, the third option is in your command phase, if this model is on the battlefield and the litany of hate has not already been recited by a friendly model that battle round, it can recite the litany of hate in addition to any other litanies. Mm. So I guess that's kind of the same as the other one, but it's uh, well, more focused on the... So I think it's the fact that you can do two in one turn, as long as one yeah, of yeah. them is the litany of hate. Absolutely. Because hatred is free. Yeah, it is for space marines, that's right. Uh, and for librarians, uh, the equal in answer to the death of the librarians as well. Uh, the first option is to add one to psychic test taken for this model when attempting to manifest a power from interromancy. So that's one of the reasons I mentioned interromancy before, is their mm -hmm. specific Dark Angels discipline. Uh, the second option is uh, each time this model manifests a witch fire psychic power from the inter uh, from the interromancy discipline, uh, add one to the number of mortal wounds inflicted. In fact, there is only one witch fire. Um, uh, psychic power, right, so. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Which can be D three or three if you you roll high enough. So yeah, I didn't want to. That's that's yeah. nice. D three plus one or four. <laughs> and my the third one, which appeals to me the most, because I always suffer from these. You can re-roll in either which test taken for this model, um, which is is a nice option. So that reduces the chance of or increases your chance of, of counter spelling there. So that's, and you can only take that interrogation uh, if if you actually captured a fallen, so you can't take that all the time. But again, it costs you no requisition points, even though it increases your crusade points by one. So then what other ones have we got? So we got one called Inauguration, uh, which is uh, a purchase requisition after battling which Dark Angels from your unit, but not vehicles or characters or scouts, uh, destroy a fallen unit. So again, you've got to destroy a fallen unit, second Inauguration. Um, that Dark Angels unit gains the inner circle keyword, or you can remove that unit from your order of battle and replace it with one of the units specified below. So if it was a Primaris unit, you could replace it with an Outrider squad or a Bladeguard veteran squad. Um, or if it's a non-Primaris unit, you can replace it with an Attack Bike Squad, a Bike Squad, Deathwing Terminators, Terminator Squad, Terminator Assault Squad, or a Relic Terminator Squad. Uh, the units must be from the same chapter and you cannot purchase this requisition if it increases uh, Crusade Force's supply set limit. And you replace it with the unit with the same number of experience points and gains appropriate number of battle honors for its rank. So, you know, your whole unit can be upgraded, uh, but only uh, and get deeper into the, the inner circles uh, if if they take out a fallen. That's funny. I like that. I can just imagine like some fresh recruits who are say like you know eighth company reserves 
um, like just a regular intercessor squad, and uh, just because yeah. they happen to be the ones who um, pin this, you know, suspicious-looking chaos marine that who doesn't appear to be, you know, covered in tentacles and raving about blood and skulls, but yes. seems to be wearing suspicious dark angel uh, robes and iconery and all the rest of it, but just happens to be in black armor. Like, what's what's all this about then? Oh, so they, my team, my team. Well, well done though. Here's here's a promotion. Um, yeah, yeah. you're you're a blue guard veteran now. Well done. Yeah, yeah. Or a tactical squad from the sixth company uh, suddenly gets gigging and oh no, and here's some Terminator armor and some uh, lightning claws. Well done, lad. <laughs> don't 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 don't, uh, don't ask any questions about that, this guy. Look, look at the shiny yeah. shiny. Look at this cross Terminators. <laughs> Enjoy. So. But that's a nice way for squads to, to upgrade and become part of the inner circle. Or they can just they can yeah. just gain the inner circle keyword and remain the the eighth squad of the sixth company, and that's fine. <laughs> oh, can they? Re- oh, yeah, you said that, didn't you? So yeah, yeah. So that means you could have what kind of like anything. So say it could have been a unit of aggressors who gain inner circle. So, yeah, all it says is excluding have... vehicle, excluding vehicle character and scout. And that's all. So. So yeah, so it could be any of your traditional. Primaris or firstborn units that are yep. outside the first and second company, but they yep. actually do get inducted into the inner circle and presumably then have permanent transhuman in effect yep. because they're in a circle. Yep. Yeah, and the inner circle is a particular uh, skill. It's very similar to previous editions. The unit automatically passes morales checks, and if it's interesting, it cannot be wounded on rolls less than four, which is pretty yep. powerful, and can't fall back if it. But they, the downside is they cannot fall back if 2d6 roll is higher than the unit's leadership characteristic or if with engagement range or fallen. So they basically, they cannot back away from fallen uh, ever. And they can't back away a lot of the time anyway because, of course, uh, they all have pretty high leaderships yeah, really of 8 really and really 9, really. right? That's, that's really cool. So that's real incentive. Now, uh, so unlike the interrogation requisition, this one, inauguration, this yep. can be awarded if the fallen unit you destroy, air quotes, destroy, yep. is Cypher. It can. It can. Okay, good. Because I was going to say, when you said that that previous one couldn't be done if it was actually Cypher as opposed to a generic fallen, yep. I thought, oh, well, that kind of decentivizes now actually wanting to use Cypher as the thing for your opponent because you're yeah. not actually going to reap a reward from it. But you can do, and to be honest, giving... Um, inner circle to a, a non-inner circle unit, I think is probably quite a worthwhile reward for trying to take Cypher out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that can be any unit. But there is there is another acquisition, again, one acquisition point that can apply to characters. So if a Dark Angel's character gains a rank uh, other than the bloodied rank, uh, that unit gains inner circle keyword and power level increased by one. Uh, and again, you can't exceed your Crusades forces to supply them in. Uh, so you can become your characters can become members of the inner circle without needing to take out a fall, and that is just a normal one requisition point to, to get in the inner circle. Okay, so I'm trying to think what that sort of applies to. So, for example, that could be a tech marine, I guess. Uh, ooh, now, it doesn't say it can't, but. Tech marines are not allowed to be inducted into the inner circle, I think, in, in the floor. Oh, you're right. Oh, that's a bad example because, yeah, they're not allowed to be inducted because they already have too many ties to um, the so of the that's, that's for the death wing. That's right. That's right. And I would assume it should be the same for the un- other Unforgiven chapters, but um, maybe, maybe it makes sense for one of the others. They're actually rather 
trusted by their brothers because of the fact that they have loyalties to Mars as well yeah. as to the chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it, I guess I guess it depends on how you want to tell the story of your force. Yeah. If you think that's what you want to do, I'm sure you can find a I was, way to I was do just that. trying to think of what characters there are that an apothecary perhaps the inner circle upgrade to so i guess it would be things like ancient apothecaries yes i was gonna say because like can lieutenants normally be upgraded if you want to pay the points uh i probably not actually because the lieutenants of the first and second company are the talent masters and the new yeah strike masters definitely strike masters Okay, so there you go. So we found the one thing that space lieutenants can't have, unless yeah. they're a dark angel, in which case they can't have it. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. <laughs> um, and then the final requisition in here is pretty cool as well. Very fluffy, but in a very different way. We've been talking about a lot about the secrets of the fallen and things like that. Uh, but this one, the lion and the wolf. Purchase this requisition at any time. Select one dark angel's infantry or dark angel's biker model from your army that is not a character. So, uh, and it says model. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Each model can only be selected for this requisition once. Add one to that model's attack characteristic, and that model gains the following ability. Victory over the Sons of the Wolf. Each time this model makes a melee attack against a Space Wolf's unit, add one to the attack hit roll and gun roll. <laughs> so basically, they gain one attack all the time, and when they fight in Space Wolves, uh, they get one to hit and one plus one to wound, uh, but it's on a specific model. So now, not only do we have agendas that allow for the killing and destruction of allied units, we now have requisitions specifically for being better at killing space, space wolves. wolves. I'm starting to question the loyalties of these the, these chapters a little bit. Yeah, many do, right? Many do. I mean, for all the flaws that the blood angels have i don't remember anything in there specifically about being better at killing other loyalist space marines well i mean having somebody who's painted a flesh eaters army um they are they are known for <laughs> uh taking out some of their allied units to, for their own rituals and their, their their zeal in combat regardless of uh shall we say from whence the blood flows I think that is perhaps a little more about getting carried away rather than premeditated <laughs> violence. Thank you. It's in the eyes of the beholder. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, so that, that more or less, I'm guessing, yeah. includes the, the, the loop of um, hunting. The acquisition. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, so it, uh, that's, that's one of the things that brings it all together. Uh, is that combination of uh, agendas and requisitions and, and those points um, they're all the things that can build up and give you these uh, things that give make the dark angels slightly more characterful and take uh, take your, your dark angels or, or unforgiving force in, in a way where you're hunting the fallen in, 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 that can build quite a nice narrative I, I think that's i think they've done that really quite well uh, if it had all been when i first read through this it was very much oh this is all about the fallen but I've always had in my head the other secrets as well and other agendas and just the little things like uh, the the specific agendas for just building experience. And then I realized I'd missed at first when I read through the, the line and the wolf one where, yeah, they have got that historic damp rival with me. And just to see that little bit of in there, that's fantastic. Yeah, I think that's cool. I mean, I think it's really good that 
the whole hunting the fallen thing is kind of optional if you want it to be. Yeah, it, it's a really good um, narrative hook that you can pursue, but it's also it sounds like these dark angels do have quite a bit of their own character to develop over crusade without it just being about hunting the fallen. Yeah. I mean, I assume they've got a couple of unique battle traits available to them as well. Uh, <clears throat> battle traits. I don't remember anything called battle traits in here. Oh, yes, sorry, but they do have, <laughs> of course they do, they're the expansions. I'm sorry, it's getting later now here as we're recording. It's just um, a secret, secret uncovered. Yeah, absolutely. They do They do have some good battle traits here. So um, they've got battle traits for uh, um, inner circle characters. Um, they've got, and they've just basically got two for each of these categories. So they're not extensive tables, and of course you can use the space for as well, but the tables for inner circle character units, Ravenwing aircraft units, death wing infantry units, Ravenwing Vicro land speeder units, and non death wing infantry units. Um, so, for, oh, I was gonna say, I was like, what non infantry death wing units are there? Non death wing infantry units, so the green wing. <laughs> oh, sorry, no, yeah, I'm thinking, I was thinking non infantry death wing. No, units, no, which would have been non death wing. Infantry, okay, yeah. it's a green wing. but I, I don't think there's any Raven Wing infantry units, are there? No, because they're like the jump infantry and stuff are kept in their um, core yeah. companies, not in the second. And yeah, the Black Knights are on bikes, mm-hmm. um, the champions and stuff are all on bikes. So tell us then. I'm curious to know what the two battle traits are for the Raven Wing aircraft, because hearing <laughs> that there's a battle trait specific for aircraft, I think is interesting. Yeah. And of course, I mean, not mention it, I'm sure uh, it's a general uh, thing, but they've got two specific aircraft as well that are not available yes, to other they factions. The, uh, the, the Dark, Dark Talon, Talon and the Nephilim Jet Fighter. That's the one. Yeah. Uh, but they can have normal uh, Space Marine aircraft as well, which can be part of uh, Ravenwing 2. Oh, yeah, of course they can, can't they? Because yeah. now all the um, non codex compliant chapters have the yep. full repertoire of the. Um, standard codex to pick from as well now. Absolutely. Cool. Um, So then one of the sort of last things really is what unique Crusader relics do the Dark Angels have access to? Indeed. Um, And they they do. Um, So there's there's a selection of different ones. So they've got uh, Artificia relics. Um, So we've got uh, Lion's Roar. Uh, which is a, a combi plasma. It replaces a combi plasma. Um, very much like previous versions, it's um, it's it's almost a plasma cannon, <laughs> um, except you can't you can't hurt yourself. And there's only one one profile, uh, which is the 18 inch assault two strength eight AP minus three damage two uh, profile for the plasma. What you can do is you could fire them both at the same time with a minus one to hit, which is quite nice. Yeah, and not have to worry about exploding your face. Like yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I always think it's fun they have that relic because it's like Asriel kind of already has that, but they also have the Lion's Roar in the armory as well, which is handed around a bit more freely. But it's a big fancy combi plasma. Cool. And then there's Raven's Eyes, which is a a sensory helmet thing. The the picture of it is just uh, covered in in little lenses, about 15 of them. So uh, what it does is it allows the bearer to ignore. uh, It can only be given to a Raven Wing model. Um, so you'd put it on a, a bike or a, a man speed or something like that. Um, 
and you can ignore any or all move characteristic advanced roll and charge roll modifiers uh, when you're when you're um, when you're doing any of those actions and each time the bearer makes a ranged attack you can ignore any or all hit roll and ballistic skill modifiers and that's can so that means you can keep the beneficial ones um, or, or and get rid of the the, the ones that you the negative ones so yeah so there really is no slowing him down yeah absolutely I mean, i've noticed there are um more and more things creeping into ninth edition that affect um movement um i know one of the um death guard like contagion aura effects is to force units to only move half distance while they're so close to the death guard um yeah. i think there's a I want to say there's a psychic power. I think it's the um, what's the the fancy infiltrating librarian, no, no, like the vanguard librarian. The Phobos librarians. Yeah, the Phobos librarians. I think one of theirs is like Tenebrae's curse or something. I think there's one of their powers that reduces okay. movement. Um, I know it's it's been a thing over the years, but I think it's going back into fashion, as it were. Um, the ninth edition rules. So that's um, I think yeah, that's a, a counter to that. Yeah, I think it's a relic that will possibly be more useful as time goes on, and we get more codexes, and more of those sort of effects are going to come into play to then yeah. be able to negate them. Yep. Uh, and then there's there's antiquity relics. Um, so the monster slayer of Caliban's replacement power sword, um, or replacement for power sword, mastercraft of sword, relic blade, or executioner blade. Um, and it's it's a superpower sword, you know, strength plus two, AP minus three, damage two, and if you're attacking a vehicle or monster, you get an extra attacks. Uh, uh, sorry, an extra wound roll uh, against that um, uh, target. So uh, properly, monster slayer of Caliban as it, its title, uh, and complementary to that is the shield of Caluson. I don't know where Caluson was, but. Uh, uh, it's basically a relic shield. Uh, it replaces a relic shield or a combat shield or a storm shield, uh, but it gives you a plus three invulnerable save and adds one to your normal armor saving throws. So you can turn your, by wielding that shield, your normal uh, uh, power armor turns into two plus power armor with a three plus invulnerable save. Uh, don't quote me on this, but I think Kalason might have been a notable location on Caliban. Oh, okay. I want to say maybe like the capital city or the um, the uh, knightly keep that Johnson and Luther were originally from. Maybe. I'm going to say that's one of those secrets that have not been inducted into the circle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in either case, it, it, it's either now part of a giant floating rock in space, or it's just been blasted apart in space. Yeah. Um, but turns out they made good shields. Absolutely, absolutely. So. Um... There's legendary relic. Legendary relic is interesting because it's uh, there's only one of them, and it's not available to uh, other unforgiven chapters unless they take a particular stratagem, um, and that's so it costs a little bit more for other unforgiven chapters other than the Dark Angels. And this is the mantle of the Seneschal, which is a uh, the skin of a beast slain by the lion himself, um, and one over your armor, and it gives you one to your move strength, toughness, wounds, and attacks. <laughs> and once per battle in your command phase, the bearer can use the following ability, the savagery of Caliban, aura, until the start of your next command phase, 
while Friend of the Dark Angel's core unit is within six inches of the bearer. Each time the model in that unit makes a melee attack, add one to that attack's hit roll. So it's really good for charging in with troops around you. Yeah, so, I mean, that mantle sounds horrendous, like, especially when you consider that being a legendary relic, it's going to be on a character who's already got a few battle honors under their yeah. belt. So that's... I always think that... I always think that chapter masters are sometimes a bit underrepresented in gameplay if it isn't a named one, you know, so yeah. when you obviously got like Asriel and Kalgar and so on and Grim, um, Logan. But I think this sort of thing, when you're talking about the battle honors and the relics and the stat buffs from that, I think that's the sort of thing that really turns a, a Space Marine captain into someone who's like the first company captain. Um, or yeah. A chapter master or whatever like if you're talking about a successor chapter i could see that being a really good relic to try and get onto your you know the chapter master of your angels of redemption or whatever i know you say you have to pay like an extra cp to get it but i just think that would really elevate that character to feeling like a space marine chapter master like these guys are you know steeped in ancient technology and relics and, and battle honors and experience and they they are kind of almost like mini primarchs <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely i, I completely agree uh, there's one cp if you you want to give that uh, along with them so uh, but it will cause you to add uh plus three uh, to your crusade points so you've got one for the, you've got to pay a requisition point anyway uh, to get the legendary relics and an additional two uh, for each legendary relic it has so Plus one from gaining the battle honor for a total of plus three to take that. But that's okay. I think it's probably worth it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then finally, um, are there a couple of new honorifics for the Dark Angels, which is um, they are. this is the like special rules that are tied to the captains of the various companies. So this is this is a bit like the unique special rules for space marine characters but in this case because it's the dark angels they have some specific roles for their company captains yeah and it's a little bit complex i'm not sure i've entirely got my head around it of course they have their own special titles so um they can't be given any of these honoristics so they cut from codex space marines they can't be master of the keep master of the watch master of the marchers or the chief victulier I believe the idea is that all those honorifics are the sort of Codex Astartes standard yeah, yeah. honorifics applied to those companies. In the Dark Angels, they have their own set of honorifics that are tied That's to right. their chapter traditions, and thus instead they have these new ones. So they have Master of the Deathwing, which can be given to Belial or a Terminator Captain. So it can be given to the name character, or you can have another Terminator Captain that you're seeing I as mean, Master of the Deathwing. I know this is one thing that often gets overlooked a little bit, but because the current, you know, like air quotes, current um, law of the universe is meant to be set during the so like the back end of the forty-first millennium, uh, these codexes and rules, and it's kind of true of all factions and armies, yeah. can be used to represent conflicts fought throughout the last ten thousand years, kind of since the heresy. So the fact that the honorific is there and exists for captain of the first company and can be given to someone other than Belial mm -hmm. 
personally, I think it would feel weird if you used this in a game where you had any modern day special characters yeah. in the say, in the army because you would you wouldn't have Captain the First Company be someone other than Belial if one he was there or two more than likely if Ezekiel or um, Asbadai or uh, Samael is there because probably yeah. if they're alive, Belial's probably alive. Right, absolutely. But so that is covered. If, yes, but like if your army is meant to be one that's fighting during the 36th or 38th millennium, Belial will not have been around. He won't have been captain of the first company at the time, but the Dark Eagles will have still had a first company captain, which could be your character that you've created for your force at that time. Yeah. And I think that's something we've talked about in the past is, you know, fighting more historical battles in 40k is something that you can totally do. Um, and, and actually, you know, setting your crusade in, in you know, the pre-Rift times um, is totally, you can totally do that. And I think that's sometimes that's forgotten. Um, I mean, I know in the case of the Dark Angel, it's, it doesn't matter so much since they don't really have many primaries in the first company, but obviously... If you had an Ultramarines force, you probably wouldn't be using the Chapter Master upgrade if your army featured any Primaris Marines, because historically, at the time there's been any Primaris Marines in the Ultramarines, Kalga has been the Chapter Master. But you could be playing it, I mean, we've talked about playing sort of historical battles, uh, but you could be playing future battles as well. There's nothing really stopping you in 2,000 years in the future beyond with your own slightly variant timeline. Uh, and that's something I know some people have done as well. And I bet Gulliman would still be walking around. Probably. Probably. <laughs> um, but if you have got Belial in there, uh, if you've got Belial in your order of battle, he automatically gains Master of the Deathwing. The same for Samael for Master of the Ravenwing and for Lazarus for the uh, Keeper of the Unseen Ritual. Um, so that's a fifth company uh, captain. Oh, it was. I said earlier when I was talking about the fifth company as my example. I didn't want to say it, but I had a, an inkling in the back of my head. I was like, "But that's Lazarus. I'm sure he's captain of the fifth. Yeah. So there's a, a Deathwing assault stratagem that the master of the Deathwing can use. Samuel's got a um, uh, a swift strike stratagem that only you can use, uh, and both of those cost zero command points for these guys. Um, and the battle tactic stratagem. So they, they relate to the, the three different modes of, you know, heavy and tactical and um, uh, and assault uh, phases. So it's a, a slightly different way that Dark Angels can make use of those general space marine rules. Uh, but the fourth one in the honorific is the Master of the Watchers, captain the seventh company. For It's supposed to be responsible for the vast network of informants and sleeper cells that keep, uh, keep a track on where the fallen appear and passing intelligence on. And if he's part of your crusade army, then after each battle you gain D3 unforgiven points. So this is the final way um, of gaining unforgiven points. Is, oh, um, that's cool. Your master of the watchers can accelerate that because he's got a network of spies and informants to, to keep him so that may move you up to as fast as maybe once every four games. Uh, you might be able I to. like that. I think, yeah, if this was me, I think I definitely, I've got a reason now to do like, you know, seventh company green wing, as it were. Yeah. Because I, I think, so I, I said it earlier, I think it's great that the Unforgiven stuff, uh, sorry, the Fallen stuff is kind of optional if you want it to be, but also there's this option to go like even harder on the Fallen Hunt if you want. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Or not. And, you know, you've got the options to uh, 
players are a normal space marine force a little bit more maybe uh, anti-space wolves or you can go full on fallen chasing or maybe just fallen chasing is something that distracts you from or sorry got that the wrong way around maybe fighting the normal wars of the imperium is something that distracts you most of the time from fallen <laughs> chasing um so yeah i like i like this codex uh especially the crusade parts of it the rest of it is quite good i'm sure there's plenty of other reviews elsewhere on the internet that you can follow up for for all the detail of, of what else is is in there for the normal rules for match play and stuff but that's that's not really something we're going to dive into and um it's uh yeah definitely worth it if you you want to play uh, any kind of unforgiven including the dark angels um, it's got the rules there to make a nice narrative force out of it and my only frustration really is the fact that we're still in lockdown and i can't get any games <laughs> to gain maybe if you made friends to cypher he'd help you escape well, while we've been talking tonight, I have been painting more Deathwing, but that's for a Space Hulk project. But nevertheless, <laughs> it's still more Dark Angels. <laughs> um, that's, I, I have to say then, um, from the initial impression I've got about the Dark Angel Crusade rules was that they were very heavy on the whole Fallen thing, and as I've... such that perhaps the Dark Angels themselves had lost a bit of representation in their Crusade rules. But actually, once you've sort of described it all this evening i don't think that's the case at all i think by the sounds of it there's plenty of death weight uh, sorry, of dark angel character to yep. these crusade upgrades and if you want to just have a really dark angel aesthetic driven crusade you can do without having to just be obsessed with hunting the fallen i, I think that's a very fair summary it certainly was one of my concerns i um even after the first time I, I read through it, uh, which I, I did relatively quickly, as I always do when I get a new book, um, it seemed very heavy on the fall, and I thought they've gone a bit one-dimensional here. But after reading it more in detail, um, I, I think those fears were assuaged, and I, I'm comfortable now. It's a lot more representative of a, a more rounded Dark Angels force, which is 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 multifaceted. Doesn't just chase the fallen, fights towards the Imperium. You know, the whole Deathwing thing. I don't know whether it's retconned or not, but the original idea of the Deathwing, the reason their, their armour is, is bone-coloured, uh, is because they defeated uh, a, a gene stealer cult infestation on one of their recruiting worlds, and, and the pile of bones they burned and, and marked their Terminator armour, they, they put it all in this dust of bone-coloured dust, and that's why their armour then was bone-coloured from that point forwards. It, it, was a, it was meant to be that they had sort of like their own mini... Um, Battle for McCrag, didn't they? Situation. Yeah, yeah. Where I don't think it was Absolutely. the entirety of the first company, but I think it was the entirety no. of um, the first company veterans present at that campaign. Yeah. I think apart, they all died in this um, purge, apart, apart from, from one, one librarian. I, to say. Uh, I, I think he was a captain. I, I, I don't think he was a librarian, but he was called Cloud Runner. Yeah, so basically he came back and told the story, didn't he? And sort of like yeah, said, right. we, should, we should now honour these brothers who gave their lives um, so heroically by forever remembering them by painting our armour bone. But whether that's just one more story they tell uh, in the depth of building up to increasing numbers of lives, who knows? Uh... Or maybe it's just that they have to paint their armour sort of bone white in order to prove there is absolutely the complete polar opposite of any fallen whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, they're it could fallen. be. Oh, that they were black. Well, we're not fallen. We're not at all fallen. So we, we'll be white. We'll be as far from fallen as possible. 
And I like the variety of the album, the, the, the Dark Angels. Like I said at the top, uh, have appealed me for me for a long time. Uh, but I, I was really pleased to get into them uh, with Sixth Edition. I'm really pleased that this uh, this new Codex release enables me to uh, play them and makes me want to pick them up and play them again in um, in Crusade games in in Ninth. Yeah, and I'm just looking forward to see what they do with other codexes moving forward. I think the upcoming Codex Drukari will be really interesting to see what their sort of Crusade stuff is. And I'm going to say it every time, but I cannot wait to see what they do with the Orcs. Because I, I honestly, I can't particularly think of anything that jumps out to me as being the obvious like hook of what an Orc Crusade is going to be. Uh, it's going to involve the word war quite a lot. Yeah. Like, I, I just don't know that they're going to make a thing out of claiming teeth or looting vehicles or on the endless quest to find enough DACA. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I, I very much hope uh, it's got the, that depth and variety in there uh, for Orcs so that you've got you've got more to choose from right? and you can do different things with the different, different clans, but... Um... Let's wait and see what comes out there. Hopefully it's as good as the Dark Angel stuff or better. I'm sure it will be. And um, I'm, I'm really enjoying doing these um, like in-depth Crusade reviews now. And I, I definitely think it'll be something we're going to do more and more of because, as I say, if, if you want to go listen to the Codex reviews for the new rules, the new changes it's going to bring to the meta or to match play or what the best way is to you know, run your most effective Dark Angel army now, then there's plenty of content out there to dig your teeth into. But if you want Crusade content, then that's what we'll be covering right here. So yeah, um, absolutely. look forward to plenty more of it. So that is more or less everything for tonight. Uh, we are going to come back with the others in a moment just to go over our community spotlights for the show. So we'll be back in just a second, guys. And we're back, guys. So we hope you enjoyed that latest On Crusade segment um, and all the you know, very mysterious things that the Unforgiven can now get up to in their games of Crusade. Um, we enjoyed talking about it. It was, uh, I'm, I'm still really enjoying these Crusade segments, and I'm looking forward to what each of these future armies and Codex releases are going to bring. Yeah, I would tell you more about what my Dark Angels are going to do at this point, but um, you know, it's a secret. It's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> However, you know what is not a secret, Dave? Uh, the community spotlight. Indeed. So tell us, Dave, uh, who or what have you been? sort of following or engaging with recently that you'd like the listeners to be aware of? Yeah, I, I know it's because I'm a little bit older, but I, I do spend a little bit more time of my time on social media, uh, on Facebook than, than other platforms. Uh, and there's some good groups there. And uh, it's certainly got some good friends there. One of the, uh, there's a couple of groups I'd like to highlight this time. One is, um, I've been painting a lot of Epic recently. I've also been painting things that build up to, to apocalypse style battles. So why not combine those with the, Epicalypse um, six millimeter forty k apocalypse group, um, and that's uh, it's uh, not the most active group on Facebook, but the guys there are quite passionate about uh, wanting to play big games in with small scale miniatures, and it's something that rather appeals to me. So um, 
I've been having fun there. Lovely. And I think the other group I want to tie at this time is is just the old Hammer Facebook group. Um, I know not everybody who plays 40k and, and listens to this podcast is is as old into the, is uh, as long-toothed in the hobby as I am, although many are more experienced, I'm sure. Um, but the uh, for those few of us that remember some of the, the, the late 80s and early 90s, um, some of the old Hammer style miniatures, and uh, types of gameplay and you've certainly heard me mention first edition 40k in the past as well as some third edition fantasy and, and, and similar time periods it's a great um nostalgia group uh, to go and join to see see what people are still doing playing in that same sort of style with the older games um and to see what some of our old timers did in the past <laughs> so uh, i really enjoy and there's, a, there's the old hammer group is the main one there's a whole small collection uh, of similar groups for for the whole old, old hammer community uh, and then for myself, we mentioned him earlier in the show, but not by name because we couldn't remember it. But um, we said we'd get round to our community member who had been playing with his mixed Imperial Crusade Force. So I just wanted to make sure we gave Douglas Misson um, a shout out because uh, he's indeed playing sort of like mixed Imperial Crusade Forces with his, uh, Space Marines, Imperial Guard, Sisters yeah. of Silence. Um, it's just interesting to see um, how he's been developing his force over time in the Facebook group um, and seeing it grow with all these different Imperial factions. So uh, I wanted to make sure we got his his name shouted out there. It has been great to see that evolve. Please keep posting, uh, Douglas. We're really enjoying those posts. And then lastly, um, I just wanted to say that recently I have upgraded my um, membership with Tabletop Tactics so that I can use their brand new app And it was only like a pound more a month in order to gain app access. And honestly, it's really good. Like I wondered whether or not I'd been quite happy just using like in browser stuff on my phone to watch the content or whether or not getting the app was really going to just help improve the the viewing quality. And for me, it has done. Like it's the first sort of like app in that style that I've um, tried before where all that content from that particular content creator is there and available and I don't have to go to YouTube in order to watch it um, or go to their website even like on my uh, phone or my laptop I can just open the app and all their videos are there and I've been really enjoying that so um, I just want to give you know I'm pretty sure most people at this point know about tabletop tactics but if you don't know about them you should do you should go check them out on YouTube and once you realize how good their stuff is Go download their app because that is also a lot of fun. And yeah, that's uh, that's everything for this week. So uh, thanks again, Dave, for coming and joining me on the show. All right, thank you for inviting me. Until next time, guys. This has been the Narrative Wargamer Podcast, helping you to discover more ways to play for. Together.